Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of MTG Rants. Uh, this one's going to be a little off the cuff, a little, uh, what, what are we going to say, like some guerrilla warfare recording kind of stuff going here. Ross's computer's a little on the fritz here, so he's having to use a laptop with the mic set up, and like, I can see him on camera right now, he's all, like, trying to juggle all the things he has to hold, because he has to have a beer while he does this as well. Yeah, so there's that's a- the most important thing, Tanner. Yeah, of course, that's why I mentioned it, I didn't say he has a yeah. beer, I said he has to have a beer. Yeah, I got a nice little 12-pack from one of the breweries, so that this is Star Hill, and they do a chocolate stout in the winter called Double Base, right, or Double Chocolate Stout. Well, I really like one of those words. Well, so they, uh, what they do is that they they have the you know the double base during the winter, but then they, they riff on it every year and they add different flavors to it all the time. Like one year they did. Did you just make those like? Was that supposed to be like a musical thing? You're like the double base riffing on it. Like all I can think was of is like not intentional at all. Okay. But anyway, I'm glad continue, you picked sorry. up on it. Sorry. So, continue. So that they just you know try different flavor combinations with that as as the starting point. A couple years ago, they did one with chili pepper that was really good. That's become kind of a thing in craft beer, like spicy beers. Like the red hot chili pepper? I'm just I'm like, am I getting trolled yeah. here? No, ch- chili pepper and chocolate is a big thing I now. know. It's, it's, it's a joke about the music connection that you oh keep my, going okay. into. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. um, way over my head, Tannen. I'm talking about beer, so I'm pretty focused on the task yeah, at I've hand. I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, they, they do a bunch of different stuff and went in to get some beer take, taken away. And in the cooler, they had 12 packs called a box of chocolates that was just four different of their takes on the double base that's really so, cool yeah so i got that and so i've got a nice uh what, what is this one this is the toasted coconut there's a, the other three are uh there's graham cracker and toasted marshmallow so i can make myself some s'more beer. s'mores yeah and what was the, the other one that i have i have another one near me that's the fourth flavor Care, careful Hold on. careful with the mic ross you're killing people at home <laughs> oh mocha okay yeah the ross, mic is have- uh Hopefully to... we get through this episode okay. <laughs> so this, this, yeah, I'm just gonna try not to move anymore. Yeah, let's say he like shifted an inch and the mic went nuts. So yeah, it's because it, I shifted it and it hit against the zipper that I'm wearing. So that's what you heard. My bad, everybody. You'll so live. I if, so I, I have a question about a, a subject that we talk about a lot on here. Yeah, I saw that Paul George got a maximum extension for four years from the Clippers today. How do you feel about that? Because to me, it feels a little weird. And the fact that can't Kawhi leave after this year if he wants to? So my understanding is that they both had player options after this year. I think Kawhi can just opt out, actually, and cannot sign an extension right now until he, he's done with that year. If um, I remember right, I'm not 100% on that. You, you, he can sign an extension, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure you can sign an extension whenever. You just have to resolve the player option. Like, you know, That's what I'm saying, you, until he you can, that. Yeah. You can accept the player option and extend from there, or you can decline the player option and extend from the year before, right? Yeah. I, th- I think you can do either. So, like, LeBron... Sure. When he signed his two-year extension with LA, he declined the player option he had at the end of the existing contract. Yeah, so he's uh, leaving himself open to be a free agent the year that his son might be eligible to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, with the Paul George thing, so what, one, it wasn't just a max; it was a super max. That, yeah, that's you, what I meant to say. Yeah. yeah, you only qualify for if you like hit some, uh, you know, really big awards. Right, and and it's only the team that has you that can give you the supermax. It's meant to incentivize, you know, homegrown Stay. talent to stay. Yeah, yeah. So far, it's generally turned out to be a disaster because the the, the supermax is enough that there's very few guys in the NBA that players that are worth it. You know, I would say more than five, but under ten 
yeah. are are legitimately worth that amount of money and bring that value to a team. And it's and, like LeBron and the young and the young studs. Yeah, like, yeah Harden, yeah. Giannis, Luca, uh, Jokic. I think Jokic is like Clay. the borderline for me. Not Clay. Um, the other guy. Steph. Steph. Yeah, Steph. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, about it right now anyway. to, to me, to me, Jokic would be sort of the borderline of like that's where yeah. I'm like I'm not 100 percent sure that he's worth a supermax, but I would be somewhat comfortable giving it to him uh, because he it wouldn't be that much of an overpay. Um, Paul, uh, and, but the thing is, a lot of guys have gotten the supermax that are outside of that uh, that stratosphere. Like uh, you know, the 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 big one was John Wall. He was on the first one, so then he had a bunch of injuries. I think it would have been a pretty big overpay regardless, but with the injuries, it was just a disaster of a contract. Um, and, uh, you know, Russell Westbrook got the Supermax. That was a disaster of a contract. A lot of Albatross contracts because of that. Um, but Paul George is, I, I would say, a little bit outside the window of where it's worth it. But here's the thing. Like, he's obviously going to take the Supermax. It's just so much money. Like, There's it, no it's way ridiculous. No. Yeah. yeah it, like, it, you basically can't turn down a Supermax contract. It's just too much money. And the question from the Clippers is, like, they invested so many resources in the trade to get him that if they didn't sign him to a Supermax and they tried to haggle and he left, then... Even a bigger disaster. Their, yeah. yeah, their team would be bad and they wouldn't have draft capital, which is the only reason to be bad, is to get, have good draft picks. So it makes sense, even if it's an overpay for them, that because they just they overpaid in the trade for him. So they kind of had to, um, you know... Uh, I, it's, that's kind of a sunk cost fallacy, but in, in their case, like... There's just no reason to be bad because they wouldn't really be able to sign other people. And if you know Kawhi ends up leaving, then, you know they're probably confident that they can re-sign him. And you know that team is still going to be really good. I think at this point, Paul George is pretty underrated. You know he he took so much of the flack from that uh, you know, from that uh, loss this year, and he he didn't look great in OKC when he was there. So it's sort of all combining to everybody thinking he's just not very good. And, you know, the, the, the NBA hive mind is very reactionary. Like the things that happened during the last year's playoffs are basically all that matter and how they rank people. Yeah. Like af- after Kawhi won the title in Toronto, there were people, there were tons of people that just said like, yeah, he's the best player in the league. He's better than LeBron or like, and he was consensus top three. Now he's like, you know, six, then everybody sucks. And, you know, Jokic is awesome. I, I remember seeing Nuggets fans when they were down 3-1 to Utah. They were just like, yeah, we can't possibly win Jokic. We have to trade him. We, we have to trade him, yeah. But, yeah. but now he's like, oh, he's a top 10 player in the league. He's incredible. We have to sign him to Supermax because of three games, you know, one of which they barely won. So it's just like... Let me get this straight. You were saying that the average sports fan is overreacts to uh, <laughs> small sample sizes and is prone to hyperbole when it comes to talking about their own teams. Yeah, I know that's that's a, a big surprise, Tannen, but yes, I'm saying that's the case. <laughs> and it's it's one of those things, and like I know that I'm guilty of it myself, but I like to think of myself as like maybe beyond the average sports fan with that, that like I take I take into account more. You get what I'm saying? Like I yeah. think more along the you know the better lo- like maybe not better lines, but more like I try to get myself into the in, into the into the thing like. If I actually was running this team, like what would I do? Not just like I'm a guy sitting at home on my armchair watching a game every now and then, which is fine. Like enjoy your game, right? That's not how I enjoy sports. I actually like the business side. I like all the moves. I like the money, you know, all that stuff. Not just like I don't want to get rich. I like seeing that it's a business and why it's run that way. You know, like why they make decisions they do. Like you've probably noticed that, you know, sometimes when you and I talk about decisions that like Wizards has made. I'll even come at it from like a business perspective and be like, yeah, it makes sense when you think about it this way. 
you know, if I was Wizards, I would probably make this decision too, knowing that it's going to suck for some people and I'm going to take flack for it. And it's like, it's a really hard job in sports to get everything right, right? That's why they pay these people absurd amounts of money. It's the, sometimes the smartest person in the room doing the job. And then sometimes it's not the smartest person in the room doing the job. And that's when I get really upset when I'm like, your front office, is, like, that's where it starts. That's your front line. If your front office isn't good, and this this is huge in games like basketball, football, baseball, where like the analytics is really taking over, and you have to know what's good and what's not. Yeah. Because if like you're not adapting, you're dying. Yeah, sports. you always got to try to stay a step ahead, and it's all about finding inefficiencies in the market. Like my, you know, my, my my favorite thing, um, you know, a lot of people like Moneyball is always the one that comes up, right? It's always Moneyball, Moneyball. Like it was the big start for the big analytic movement in sports, right? And people are like, oh, but but Oakland never actually won at all or whatever blah, blah blah i'm like yeah but did you see what boston did over the next nine years boston <laughs> literally just took what they did and was like we actually have money you know we're not pinching <laughs> pennies we actually have money yeah. what if we double the payroll and do all the same smart things yeah and it just destroyed the league oh. for like the next like seven years their team yeah. was, their teams are first unreal. title in 86 years won another one three years later basically being the wire to wire best yeah. team in the league that year and then they went from like worst to first another year and won a title out of nowhere because like they did it again. They were like they they realized what was wrong in their own clubhouse, what was wrong with their team, and like they fixed those holes. Because like yeah. you see that a lot with teams in basketball where like they'll be bad at something and they're like, well, we'll just go get this superstar because they're the best player available. I'm like, look, I get it, they're good, they make you better, but like, is that the actual fix you need? It's like when you're thinking about your your magic deck, you keep losing to this deck. Like, play the card that helps you. Yeah. in that spot and, and that's why i really am excited for utah this year because i think that's what they did a lot of fringe moves that are going to help around with some of the stuff yeah so basically you know the narrative from the hive mind is almost entirely centered around what happened in the bubble and in the playoffs it's like everybody has forgotten that there was like you know six months of a season that happened and that that was most of the games that were played with these teams and that, so it's just completely irrelevant those six months, but they're actually you know much more valuable if you're trying to look back and figure out how to improve your team. And what if you look at the Jazz? What happened was you know for the last couple of years before this past one, they had an, an elite defensive team. It was them and Milwaukee were the two best defensive teams in the league. You know year after year, and it was because they had Rudy Gobert and Derek Favors, but their team lacked spacing with Favors and Rubio, neither of whom shoots the ball well. So their offense was always pretty bad, was mediocre at best, right? They were they were about an average offensive team, maybe slightly above, but elite defensively. And they lost to the Rockets the previous year in the playoffs because they couldn't shoot. The Rockets just would they just clogged the paint and let the Jazz shoot with Jay Crowder and Ricky Rubio, and those guys just clanked threes the entire series. So did Donovan Mitchell. They had a terrible series, but they actually destroyed the Rockets defensively in the last three games. They took the first two games. They didn't implement this weird system well, where they sort of guarded Harden from the side to cut off his step back. But once they got it down, because it required a lot of like tight rotations on the back end defensively, otherwise you opened up lobs and open corner threes and things like that. I don't want to get into the you know real big details, but once they got it down, they literally took the Rockets, who were an elite offensive team, and made them embarrassingly bad. Like it was, it's it was honestly incredible. But they just couldn't shoot. So they made the decision to basically overhaul the roster and, you know, become an elite offensive team. And so they let Ricky Rubio go. They let Derek Favors go. They let Jay Crowder go. And they brought in Mike Conley. And I guess Jay Crowder, they didn't like him. He was part of the Conley trade. But uh, And they brought in Mike Conley, who's a very good shooter. And they brought in Bojan Bogdanovic, who's an elite shooter and was even better with the Jazz this last year. He was like 41% on seven and a half threes a game. 
which is, you know, an unbelievable mark. So, so, uh, so this year they were an elite offensive team. The issue was, uh, the, uh, they, they didn't, if you look at the entire season, their, their numbers don't look at as much, but it was because early on their bench was heinous because they, once they brought in Conley, they didn't have much cap room. So they had to fill out their bench with, you know, minimum contract guys and they didn't really work out. So they brought, they made a midseason trade for Jordan Clarkson to give them, you know, bench offense, which is like his major strength. And from the moment of that trade until the, the shutdown because of COVID, they had the number one offense in the league. And that's including Dallas, who had the number one offense overall over the entire season and the highest offensive rating ever recorded in NBA history. And the Jazz offensive rating over that, uh, so this is from about Christmas Day till mid-March. So you're talking an almost four-month stretch, though, with the uh, uh, All-Star break put in there. So maybe a three-month stretch of actual regular season basketball. The Jazz offensive rating was even better than what that Mavericks mark was. Not by a ton, but you know, slightly ahead. So it was incredible offense. But their defense dropped because when Rudy was out of the game, their backup big was bad. Because Ed Davis didn't pan out, who's the guy they brought in to be good. And they had this young guy they were bringing up, and they decided sort of to throw him in when he wasn't ready, Tony Bradley. And he had some okay nights, but was generally just not very good. So if you look at their numbers, they're they just drop like six or seven points on de- on the defensive side of the ball when Rudy Gobert left the floor. They just couldn't couldn't defend, and so bringing in Derek Favors means they just get to play forty eight minutes of really good defensive basketball. And their offense is also built heavily around the pick and roll. And both Favors and Gobert are good uh, role men as big men, and so now they get forty eight minutes of being able to play basketball exactly the way they want with really high level play. Favors is basically the best backup center in the league. Uh, and Rudy is, you know, the best defensive center in the league. So they just fixed that hole immediately. The problem is everybody who watched the, like the the Nuggets series just saw Jamal Murray going off, and so they assume that all the Jazz need is perimeter defense. And they don't understand one with be- with better, uh, you know, bigs behind them. The perimeter defenders can play more aggressively, and knowing that you know some of their mistakes are going to get cleaned up, so it actually helps their perimeter defense, you know, in, uh, indirectly. And two, their bigger problem overall was actually bench interior defense, but nobody remembers the six months that happened before the COVID shutdown, so everybody's fucking stupid. Exactly. Basically, the Jazz are really smart, and everyone's really stupid. And I can can tell you're, like, really excited for it to start. I mean, we're only, like, what, like a week, week and a half Their first preseason game is Saturday. Yeah, I know you're, like, super excited about this. You know what I am excited about in the future? I don't know if you heard, but there's a lot of really, really big announcements in nerd culture today, mostly coming out of, like, the whole Disney uh, thing. I it was have like seen none of these things. Okay, so it was like a like shareholder announcement day today or something, you know, like something to do, be like, hey, make sure you keep your stock in Disney and make sure our stock prices are high, but they announced a whole bunch of stuff for Marvel and for like Disney and stuff today, and so um, I'm pretty excited because I'm a big Marvel fan, I'm a big Star Wars fan, like something that might not be known to a lot of people is how big of a Star Wars fan I have been in my life, like when the expanded universe was a thing before it got retconned when um, Disney took over, they, you know, we're like, hey, these books never happened. Um, I had read probably like seventy-five to ninety percent of the books that that were out in in the series and stuff. So I was going to get around to all of them, but quit when I was like, oh, these aren't actually things anymore. And today they announced that uh, there's going to be ten more like Star Wars type shows coming in some way, shape, or form, or movies, plus uh, ten total like uh, Marvel ones as well. Which a lot of those we've already seen that are in development. Coming in what time frame? Uh, I think some are going to be suited than others because they're animated. I'm not sure on that. Uh, some of them are already in development. Like the, do you know there's an Obi-Wan series coming out? That sounds awesome. 
And do, do you know who's acting in the show? Is it Ewan McGregor? It is Ewan McGregor, but they announced another actor that was going to be in it today that has got a lot of people hyped up. Uh, Hayden, Hayden Christensen will be reprising his role as Darth Vader in the show. Or I assume also as Anakin. If, they're do, like, if they do an well, Obi-Wan we'll show, see. they should, you know... I'm sure they'll have flashbacks of some kind. Okay. Yeah, I guess they're going to be. It's set. It's set ten years after. uh, What was that one? Revenge of the Sith. Sith. So ten years before A New Hope, because there's twenty years between those. Yeah, something like that. I don't. They may mess with the timeline. We'll see. Yeah. You know that. It's going to be during his isolation on Tatooine. Tatooine. I hope they. I hope they show him trying to learn the like you know uh, communication with the dead kind of thing with Qui Gon. That, you know, Yoda tells him, like, you know, training I have for you, you know, while on Tatooine at the end of Revenge of the Sith. So I hope they show, I hope they show, like, the breakthrough moment when he finally figures it out and communicates with Qui-Gon for the first time. Yeah, and so they, they announced, like, actual, like, ten, ten things uh, today uh, that, that all look pretty cool. Some of them, might, you know, we don't know what this means. But, you know, there's, like, obviously there's going to be a season three of Mandalorian. Anyone who, like, didn't think of that is out of their damn mind. Yeah. Uh you know, there's going to be the Jedi spinoff of Asioka, or however you pronounce her name. I'm, I know I'm getting probably grilled by people right now because I didn't. You're watch supposed that. to be a fan, Tannen. Well, I didn't watch the animated stuff. Who cares? You're know. supposed to still know it all. But there is one of the shows that they announced today, but it does look like it's actually going to be a movie that uh, I'm super excited about. It's just called Rogue Squadron, and those are some of my favorite books. Uh, Rogue Squadron was a, it's like a, it's a squadron of X-wings. It was led by Wedge Antilles. He's like one of the characters. He's in all of the Star Wars movies. You just don't kind of notice him. He survives both Death Star runs. Uh, he's like with Luke a lot. You know, it's like he's he's the best normal pilot in the in the uh, in the rebellion. The one that's not a Jedi, right? He was like the number one guy. And in the old canon, uh, Rogue Squadron was used as like they were they were like the SWAT team, you know, when like something, when shit at the fan, you had, you had a, a, an impossible mission, some mission that's really hard. That's who you, 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 they're the best of the best, right? Like in the books, they were, you know, they liberated Coruscant after uh, the rebellion won the, the fight in, at Endor because like, you know, the, a lot of the books that happened after the movies were really cool because they, they took on some of the, the stuff that like you didn't think about, like, yeah, like at the end of the third movie, you know, episode six, like, everyone's happy, the Emperor's dead, blah, blah, blah. Like, there's a lot more to do. They don't, yeah. like, the Empire doesn't just go home. You know what I mean? Like, they, they <laughs> still have a lot of infrastructure built up there that you gotta, yeah. you know, reckon with. Str- yeah, it took them years to get, like, you know, some of these planets liberated and stuff. And Coruscant was, like, the, the main planet, like, the capital, you know? And so, like, they had to go in there and, like, liberate that shit, you know? And, like, the, the whole storyline of all that was going on was really cool. Um, if it's a movie, it'll be sweet. I think it'll be more along the Rogue uh, Rogue One storylines, you know, where it's like a side story kind of thing, which, if anyone knows, in my opinion, that's, it might be the best Star Wars movie there is. I thought Rogue One was amazing. Um, it's very high up there. But I thought it, would, it could play pretty well as a TV series, too. Like, like think Battlestar Galactica, but, like, in, in Star Wars, you know, universe, and, like, just something cool like that where, like... I know nothing about Battlestar Galactica. Uh, Battlestar Galactica is a really good series. You should definitely check that I, one out. That's I know it's very popular. Yeah, um, it's good. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. Who was in that? Uh, she's actually in The Mandalorian. It's uh, what is it? Katie Sackhoff, I think is her that's name. That's it. That's and the then there's a couple other big actors and actresses that were that were like I, I forget the guy's name. He's he's famous and like he was known for a lot of stuff. Give me a minute and it'll it'll come back to me. But pretty excited to see all that. Um, I, I see the name up here, and I don't... I'm, I'm hoping this is what it is, but they're going to do... Do you remember the movie Willow? 
with no. Val Kilmer and, and stuff from like, it's like from, I think the late eighties, it's like a really cool fantasy movie. That was, I loved it as a child. They're going to do something with that. They've been trying to do something with that for a long time. Just a lot of really cool. Um, there's a, there's a spinoff from rogue one coming out from one of the characters. They're going to like have his backstory because he's a really cool character, but you know, if you've seen Rogue One and if you haven't seen it yet, obviously he doesn't make it through the movie because the idea, like I remember watching, going into the movie and people were like, yeah, do you think they're going to change the ending? Because it's so non Disney because in the, in the, in the history of the storyline, like whoever got them, the Rebel Alliance, the plans for the Death Star, like they did not make it. Like they had to give their lives for this. Like, yeah, because it was just such a, it was such a big deal. And so uh, I remember the filmmakers, they 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 say as much at the beginning of a new hope, right? Yeah. They, they literally said many Bothans died. Or yeah, like, to yeah, bring so, us this information. Yeah, so like, I remember there's a story that they they came to Disney and they're like, all right, here's what we're gonna do. Here's like, here's all our plans. Blah 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 blah. Um, we have an ending where like they survive somehow. And someone was like, what do you mean? Like they're not supposed to survive? And they're like, oh thank God. <laughs> like you know, we didn't want to we didn't want to actually do that. But uh, the person doing the Red Squadron stuff is also um, the director who did. Um, I remember she's doing like wonder woman and a couple of other big movies. And like, I really like the direction they took on that. So like, I think it's a good, you know, it's some good people to do that. Uh, Lando is probably going to get his own show. Like there's, there's all kinds of, I'm hoping this stuff is good. There is a, look, I love hearing all this, especially this being stuck at home, all this new, uh, these new, you know, names, faces, shows coming out. It's gonna be great. All, all this new stuff to, to watch and whatever, but you can be oversaturated as well. When you do too much of the stuff, you stretch the the, the good the, the good directors, the good show writers, the good show writers, you spread them thin. And I don't want stuff to, to, to suffer. I would rather have higher quality, lower frequency on stuff than just a ton of mediocre shit. You know, so like, let's let's hope that happens. I'm just like, hey, just make sure John Favreau's got his hands in everything, please. You know, like that man has been amazing for Marvel, has been amazing for Disney, like just, you know, that kind of stuff, so... Uh, my my inner nerd. He was good in Chef. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he was he was good in Rudy. You know, he's good in a lot of stuff. But um, the nerd side of me got really excited today. Like it was the first thing I checked when I woke up today because I slept in quite a bit. Nerd. I knew that they were a... Yeah, I had to get my nerd cred out a little bit for today. So super excited for that. Also, Mandalorian season two has been like. I'm sure you've seen people talk about it on Twitter every Friday when the new episode comes out. Yeah, been, there's a lot of there's a lot of tweeting about the Mandalorian. It's it's been pretty off the rails and like it's pretty good and they just brought back a very I mean we all knew it was going to happen but they brought back a very favorite character in the history of of uh of Star, Star Wars. Wars. That was, that is it Boba Fett? It is Boba Fett. So yeah, uh, like somehow got, the most just I don't understand how Boba Fett got so popular. He's like barely in the movies. He's just fucking cool. You know what I mean? Like I don't know. It was like. Years and years ago, it just happened. Also, there was a ton of uh, expanded universe stuff on him because also in the expanded universe, he didn't die. You know, because like in the third in the third movie, uh, Return of the Jedi, he like falls into Sarlacc pit. Yeah, doesn't he like crawl he out of it? Uh, he blows it up. Yeah, and, and survives. Uh, I, I, I heard that he just like somehow crawls out of it and throws a grenade into it. It you don't. Here's the thing: if you if you survive the Sarlacc pit, which I don't think there's a lot of examples of in history, you aren't the better for it. It drives yeah. you crazy as you go in there. Like, while you're in there, like, it, it does stuff to you. You know what I mean? Like, it's it digesting you, you very slowly. Well, it also puts drugs into your system. I think, like, one of the things it secretes, like, drives you mad. Like, drives you crazy or something in there. I don't remember all the details. I read that book, like, 20 years ago. Where is the Sarlacc pit again? It was on Tatooine. Um, How far away is pit. that? I'd like some... I just want some free drugs. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very, um, it's exactly far, far away. If you can yeah, figure yeah. out exactly how far, far away, how far away, far, far away is, sorry, that was a mouthful, then there, there you go. It's probably over the river and through the woods. It's got to be at least that, I think. Huh. We spent a lot of time talking about nerd stuff and non-nerd stuff. Are you ready to talk about... Uh, t- to be fair, the way I talk about basketball, it's nerd stuff. Oh, yeah. 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 It's we, we talk nerdy about non-nerd stuff. Yeah. That's why Magic players like, you know, ba- like, I, I see there's a big there's a big baseball connection and fantasy football connection. They love the, the numbers and stats and stuff of everything. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, it, there was just the statistical revolution in, you know, in sports is just a rehashing of, like, jock and nerd antagonisms right it's literally just revenge of the nerds but in real life what did we say the statistical revolution literally the mental image that pops into my head is like you know a mob coming down a street in like <laughs> old england and like they're they're wearing that and they have their pitchforks and they're burning you know and they're 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 fire and stuff and it's just like people like you leading the charge yeah. these these guys have like beards and like you know they really like their microbreweries. <laughs> you know, just nerds. Like that. Now you're just describing hipsters. That's a, that's a whole different subculture. Oh, they'd be in that. Canon. They'd be in that too. Come yeah, on. Yeah, but there, there's certainly some overlap. But hipster is just another. It's just another genre of very specific nerd. Like they just yeah. like a very sub specific subset of nerdum. And that is that, that's a good point. But like the, the reason that some people, you know, some former athletes or you know former scouts and things like that, like they don't like it, is because it like. One, it sort of threatened their expertise, and that they just thought, like, how, how the fuck can you know? Like, you you never played this at a competitive level. It's like, well, but I know how to, like, you know, learn and figure things out. It's and, like, yeah, you, you play this at a competitive level. I studied this at a graduate level at, at like, Harvard, and, I'm like, I'm the smartest person in any room I'm in. Like, you don't actually understand the you You can play the game, but you don't understand the game you're playing. Yeah. Like, you're, you're playing an archaic version of this game. And, like, and it's become, like, very clear that, you know, the... The stats people were just right, <laughs> and 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 then when it comes when it came down to it, the battle then became well, the stats people are going to win me more games, and that makes me more money. So the people in charge are always going to side with the people that make them more money. It's like when you think about it, it just makes sense, right? It's like yeah, like some of these guys are were really good baseball players, and they understood the game from their own perspective, and like that's going to be right a good percent of the time. But you know what's always right and never wrong? Math. Like <laughs> numbers, numbers don't lie. You know, they, and like, they can be misused though. Oh yeah, they can be misinterpreted yeah. and misused, but, but that's, that's not up to the, the numbers' fault. Point. That's that's the yeah. that's the person's fault. That's, so. that's not the numbers' fault. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's the, that's the and like fault. so much of what we you know you we thought we knew was just like what people did and that worked early on. And it's like it's not even necessarily true that it worked because like what they were doing was better than what other people were doing. Maybe it was better, but it wasn't. It still wasn't the best thing you can be doing. But it was better than what people were doing at the time. It's sort of like, you know, a deck that does really well on week one because it beats up the week one metagame, and then we find the actual good decks, and then, you know, that deck that won on week one isn't good anymore. It's just taken forever for our, our metagame to evolve in baseball, in basketball, you know, what, what have you, uh, because a lot of it is them just being so set in their ways and it being that old boys club, but, you know, it's just it very clear. It probably will again. It probably will again in my lifetime. You know, there's a, there is a chance that if baseball survives for the next 40 years, because let's be real, there's an actual chance that it doesn't. But let's say baseball survives for the next 40 years, that there's another drastic change at some point. You know, like, we'll have yeah. to see. And I agree that, like, you know, there's there's now this epidemic of people that don't know how to use statistics and statistical data and just cite it in very poor ways and, and misconstrue it in different ways. 
And those people often get pointed to by, you know, the, the jock click saying like, see, like, you know, data is not everything. You still got to, and well, the, while the people who actually know what they're doing completely agree, they're like, yeah, like you have to synthesize the two, but they're both really important. And the data has, you know, revealed shortcomings in the way that we viewed the game. And it will continue to reveal those shortcomings, you know, for decades henceforth. It's just, you know, ridiculous to think this idea that like, uh, you know, advanced stats and analytics and things are meaningless. I, I still get a kick out of how much Charles Barkley hates them, even though they have like, I don't want to say rehabilitated him because he he was never in need of rehabilitation. Everybody always knew, you know, he's an all-time great, but it, like they make him look even better than he was. Yeah, it's like, like they, he's a big he's a big reason. Like he was one of the examples of players that like we didn't understand how great he actually was. Yeah, because his his just his level of efficiency scoring wise was just way off the charts. Like his he scores at, a, at an efficiency rating that's about a, a, that's on par with Steph Curry, even though Charles Barkley is one of the single worst volume three point shooters of all time. I think Westbrook might have passed him at the, by this point, but at one point, if you looked at people who had attempted at least like two thousand in their career. Charles Barkley was dead last in percentage. So he, and he, he also like got on the, the like warriors when they initially started becoming good. It's like, yeah, you can't win being a jump shooting team. They're not going to win. Well, obviously they eventually won, but he also just took way too many jump shots. He took, he, he was like, he was doing the things that they were, that he was criticizing other people for. And he was bad at them. Yeah. He's just, he's just capped in lack of self-awareness. It's like um, it's it's it reminds me. In if anyone follows me on Twitter, they saw me go off on this during the the baseball playoffs. It's like when um, a you know you hear these announcers that are a lot like Barkley, like they hate. You can tell they just hate baseball now. Like they hate the analytics side. You know, like they'll. It, it sounds like it hurts. They, they want to see the second baseman in the same spot and the outfielders yeah. in the same fucking spot every time. And I'm sure you you or some people might remember me just going off on them talking about. Bunting. Oh yeah. Like I lose my mind. Whenever they talk about bunting, remember A Rod Alex Rodriguez was doing was doing commentary, and in the past I've actually been a proponent of his commentary, been like he's actually not bad. When like I really didn't realize how bad he actually is, just when I started hearing him day to day, because he just repeats himself a lot. And he's he at least once a at least once a broadcast, which I could probably say the same thing about me. His brain turns to mush for like a fifteen second period, or he starts a sentence and doesn't realize where he's going with it, and you could tell like the brain just not all there, you know. But my favorite part is when like. He would just go off on these tangents about bunting. He's like, see, this is where bunting, you know, they, they can't get the bunt down here or they didn't even try a bunt here. And it's, I think it's really good for this team, blah, 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 right? All stuff. And he's like, you know, he just keeps talking about this and keeps talking about this. And he's like, I can't believe these guys. And like, you know, one team attempted it and they didn't do very well at it. The guy failed trying to do it. And it's like, well, you're asking someone to do something they don't normally do in a high pressure situation. Like they don't normally do in a normal situation. And now they're in a high pressure situation and blah, blah, blah. He's like, yeah, I can't believe they just don't have the fundamentals down to do this. And I'm like, you didn't attempt a bunt in the last like 18 years of your career. Like they didn't even <laughs> attempt one. And you're like <laughs> shitting on this person for not getting a bunt down in like the biggest moment of their career. You know, like they're the most pressure ever. Also the situation is drastically weird too. They're in a baseball stadium with no fucking fans. So it just sounds weird. You know what I mean? Like it's got, it, it, they admit it. A lot of players admitted the season was difficult for them because it sounded weird. It felt weird. Like, you know, it's just, dude, we're, by ourselves out in this big open area. Like it's just, it's just strange, you know, like a lot of players say that the, the crowd noise actually helps them. You know, it's like white noise in the background. They get to focus on what's going on. I imagine that like 
if they played for two years, you know, with no fans, they would you would get used to it. It's just a you know, it just takes time, and it's just all about familiarity. And yeah, that, you know, I mean, you saw when, a lot of when you're a big league player, you, you've played in front of big crowds for long enough. Whether it's you know high level high school games, and then you know minor leagues get, get a little bit bigger, and then you start getting the major leagues. You play a couple of years, you just get used to it. So and, and taking away anything that you're used to is gonna be a uh, you know a hurdle. Yeah, especially when it's a it's like a purely muscle memory type thing, like because that's why you practice so much. You just want it to become muscle memory. You want to be able to like just do the same at all times. I mean, you even saw. I think most teams got into this, if not all of them. They uh, they they went to the point where they put fake people in the stands and then they pumped in crowd noise into the speakers. You know, they'd be cheering and booing and stuff. Blah, blah. By the yeah. way, real quick side. They did the same thing that. in the NBA bubble. Yeah, my favorite. Uh, instance of any of the fans things is have you seen what the Denver Broncos do during their games? No. So they have the cardboard cutout type things that everybody does, but there's a, I think there's at least a section. It's all the characters from South Park are sitting in their stands. <laughs> so I was, I was like, that's actually really great. So like, you know, Timmy and all those people are in there, but anyway, let's talk about some magic. Cause uh, there was some tournament that went on this weekend. That was kind of big plus some other ones, but there was one really big one. Yeah, the Zendikar Rising Championship, which we spent a lot of last week's show talking about. Uh, this is uh, the you know first marquee event, I think, of, of the new revamped organized play system. W- went off quite well. Um, uh, yeah, I was going to say that there was not a lot of complaints besides the typical, you know, this isn't my pro tour grumble. You know what I mean? Like the typical yeah, grumbling. Whatever people, fucking but, nonsense. Things change. But get used to other it. than that, it went really well. I actually watched a little bit of it. I watched less than I thought I would, but I watched a little bit of it. Um I watched a lot of Autumn's matches. Um, yeah, I'm glad that that is now like the big storyline coming out of the weekend. You know, just everybody being very out out and out. Like, yeah, Autumn is just flat out one of the best players in the world. Uh, it's, you know, undeniable at this point. It, it's not just Not only true. is it undeniable, I think you can actually start the conversation that they might be overall the best player in the world. In yeah, the fact that... They're in the conversation. Yeah, and the fact that not just play-wise, but they always seem to have the best deck or decks for the weekend or to get the metagame almost always correct. I, I won't necessarily the say they have the, the best deck all the time because that's just a hard thing to quantify. You, you know what I mean? What I, yeah, to say I would say, the, I to say the version the of whatever decks they choose to bring are always really, really good. They always have an excellent list for the decks they choose to bring. Mm-hmm. They always have and, some innovation, like yeah. some one of and other decks they're at a four of now, or they have a new four of in a deck, and you're like, what? And then you see them play out. and Yeah, the, the whatever, what was uh, Her- Herald's Horn? Is that the one? Right, that, Herald's, that was, Herald's that was Horn, there's four, and, and, and uh, Mindstone. The they, played, they played Mindstone and Heraldtone. Yeah, oh, you know, uh, I, I think I'd seen Mindstone before. I'm not sure if that was solely them. But they went super hard, is what I'm saying. They're playing all of those. Yeah, yeah, like went f- just full in on, on the main acceleration plan, and... It just, you know, it made the deck sort of hum a, a lot more efficiently. I, I think it was just a, a step forward for the archetype. And I, I had written in my article the week before that I thought Goblins was really going to underperform. I was very low on the deck. And overall, the record for Goblins in the tournament wasn't that good. And you got to, you know, counterbalance that with Autumn playing this unique list and then and doing re- quite well. So I think Stock Goblins was not a particularly good deck for the weekend. But they, when you, it, it's really nice when you can take a deck that isn't well positioned which also means people are probably going to be a little underprepared for you and have a innovations that they are not prepared for. 
I was about to say, in your, in your own defense, I think you need to start putting this into articles when you do this, when you talk about like what deck you think is going to do well or what deck you think is going to underperform, especially if you think there's a chance that Autumn plays it. You can be like, I think this deck will underperform unless Autumn plays it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I literally chose a, an, a deck I thought was going to overperform and underperform in each format, and my underperformers were Gruel Adventures and Goblins, and then Autumn was just the lone 7-0 after day one playing those two decks. And I, I just remember like, you know, looking at the standings after day one and just being like, what? I should have just asked them what they were playing before I wrote this article. Yeah. Autumn, what are you playing so I look less stupid? Yeah. Yeah. But I will say this. One of the cool things to come out this weekend, besides you know the, the conversations about Autumn, that, that's awesome. I think it's great that that's actually a, a conversation that's being had on Twitter and stuff as well, as well, is Brad Barclay won the tournament this weekend, but the two decks that he chose to play this weekend, they are hard control decks. I, I mean, yeah. we are... We are deep in the control, like, not a ton of win conditions. Like, we are we are doing, like, the. the I, I want to emphasize how much of a draw-go deck the Historic deck is. There is only, like, a few cards that are actual sorceries in this deck. <laughs> and uh, that's it's mostly the Planeswalkers and, like, the, the Graft Diggers. One, one Search for Escanta? Yeah, well, the, the Baffling End, I guess you could, you know, it... It's sorcery speed, but it's meant to be yeah. on turn two. How, how many reverse. cards that cost more than two? Yeah, there's not uh, many. I mean, yes, you could sorcery speed a shark type. It, it's like Teferi. Is is that the only one? Yeah, the, the card that kills you because yeah. it, it allows you to play. It allows you to play it at the speed by, while casting a sorcery. Yeah, you know, you and, and Teferi is like one of the reasons to be playing blue eye control. Yeah, it, you have it's... like Wrath of God, and I gotta say this: watching him play the deck, he, I, which I did because. He, I'm secretly a control mage at heart. Always have been. Love these decks. I love when they're good. I think it's good for a format. Um, these decks generally have a very small margin of error. If you mess up somewhere, you are going to pay for it. Like if you play the wrong land on like turn two, you'll realize on like turn five. Or if you secret your removal incorrectly. Or if you don't get as much value out of a card as you need to get into a game. You know, there's some games where you're, you're, you're flush with like enough removal, right? Or enough counter spells that it doesn't matter. But... You can tell that he really got a lot out of every single card he played in every way that he played it. And I wanted to emphasize this because it it became really important in like the matches versus like Autumn and her in their builds of goblins with like all this extra because their builds of goblins was so good for like this exact matchup where you know usually goblins if like you wrath them and stop a Muxus, they 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 can't win anymore because they can't keep up with getting like three for one or four for one. And their version actually could. So you had to play on this even thinner margin against that deck to win. And seeing that happen was actually really impressive because if you're going to be the best, you have to beat the best. Yeah, inconsistently, yeah. He, I, I'm pretty sure Autumn went 5-2 and two in the Swiss in Historic, losing once to, uh, to Brad, and then uh, lost to him tw- essentially twice. Well, she, she lost to him in the regular, you know, uh, upper bracket finals, and then essentially twice more in the finals because they played best out of three matches. So he, he literally won four matches in a row in a matchup that, you know, historically when the, when the Goblin deck is a, the Goblin Matron style deck as opposed to like a straight aggro deck, it's historically been very good against control. Like Goblins loved playing against Miracles and Legacy back in the day. That was it. That was the matchup that it was designed to beat. And one of the reasons it stayed playable for a little bit longer, despite being underpowered. But so... You know, if, if you asked me on paper if this Herald's Horn Goblin deck was good against Blue Eye Control, I, I would say absolutely yes. And it, it, he actually made it look pr- pretty easy, to be honest. I, th- I thought watching the finals, there was one game he got pretty lucky in. 
uh, and that was game game one of match one when he found the second wrath almost immediately, and he was gonna you know die really quickly. But other than that, it looked pretty routine. You know, granted, it, each, both matches went to game three, so you know you, you, if he if he doesn't win that game, then it's you know three games apiece, one match apiece, going to match three. You don't know what's gonna happen, so. You know, maybe that maybe it really was just close and he ended up, you know, uh, on the good side of things. But the games he won looked routine. You know, his play was crisp the entire time, like you said, clearly a, a practice control mage. And at this point, like you don't see a lot of people breaking out control decks unless they're practiced control players, because it's just so hard in 2020. Just, yeah. To play control just, like, decks. Picking, yeah. I don't recommend just like picking up. Sorry for interrupting. Uh, yeah. Just pick up this deck out of nowhere. Yeah, your like, margin for error is so small. Like we, we haven't won with a blue white control deck on versus live in years. I'm not like I don't I don't think ever since we've been live. And it, and we we played we replayed that matchup on versus and I played the goblin side and I beat Corey playing the blue white side. Uh I was going to say if I ever get to be like if ever in Rona can get to be on a special episode of it, I don't care what format we have to play. I'm going to play a blue white deck and I'm going to mop the floor with your ass. With you it. know there there's another deck we never win with on versus too, right? Do you know uh, what it is? Or Tron? It's Tron. <laughs> yeah, I'll, just, I'll teach we you never win with Tron. I will mulligan to four or five every game and beat the shit out of you guys. That, that would be a fun show for you to be on. You have Blue Eye Control, Tron, and like something else. And it's just like, let's see if Tannen could win with his decks when literally we never can. Yeah, exactly. That'd be a great stuff. And I gotta say this, being in practice with this deck, uh, especially in Historic, had to be a big deal. Because the rest of the top eight, besides these two decks that we just talked about, was pretty much the same deck. And he... And he had to play this matchup a lot. It was probably the most popular deck, and what overall might actually just be the best oh, deck in historic. Cer certainly, undoubtedly, now the yeah. the number one deck to be in historic is Sultai Mid Range or Four Color. If you want, yeah, a there's, the, there's the two different versions. They want to play the pig, you know. The yeah, pig yeah. Is, so like, do you so. want Yasharn? You also get access to Mythos of Nethroy, which I, I saw looked quite good in the Four Color list. It's a very versatile removal spell, pretty easy to cast when you have the white sources in your deck. You play some Adatha Triomes and and stuff like that. So. Um, you know, but essentially the same deck and, you know, to me, it was the innovations that the two, uh, players in the finals had, you know, Autumn with, uh, Harold's Horn and Barclay with main deck of Graftigger's Cage, which is, you know, a pretty bold decision to make in a tournament, uh, especially when that's not, you know, one of these 60 person tournaments where the field is pretty narrow, you know, this is a, a wider field. You're making a very bold decision saying, like, I think this card is going to be good against a huge swath of the metagame. And to his credit, he was right. And so it was a, a big thing to have those main deck cages. They're quite good against Sultai just because Uro is so important for them, especially against a control deck. I think without access to Uro, you, you know, you're pretty comfortable against them. But w with it, you know, it, things can get can get hairy. So um, to me, it looked like, you know... The, there was a clear best deck, and most of the people that just brought sort of stock historic decks lost to the Sultai players, but the people that were able to say, okay, how do I make this deck that I think is quite good beat Sultai, because the deck, the, you know, that's going to be the most popular deck, and they figured out the right ways to do it, they're the ones who came out on top, because, you know, Ottoman and Brad were the upper bracket finalists, you know, they do a, a double elimination top eight, so they literally won every match they played against Sultai are four-color mid-range decks, and, and Autumn only lost to Brat. And yeah, that's a big feather in your cap, right? Like, that just shows how ready they were, where their decks were. And, you know, it's not often that like, when you get a top eight like this, anything you know, just from, like, the historic perspective, I mean the format historic, not a historic perspective overall, where, let's say, it's, like, six of one deck, 
and two of the other, generally the the, the six decks just dominate that top eight as well, right? Because there's a reason, right? You, know, you think of a top eight that'd be like, you know, six Hogax and two other decks. Generally, it's going to be like a Hogak Hogak final. There's also only so much of an edge you could build, you know. Right. Like in order for the two the two to do well, they got to win a huge portion of their matches. Like they're probably even if they are favored, they're probably not favored by that much. And so, like that, that's what I was talking about. Is like it's it's a big deal that those were like the two decks that stood out. Those are the two decks that made it as far as they did. You know, those are the two that we're gonna obviously talk the most about because it's not that you know it's not just this deck that we're getting kind of beat over the head with now in the format. And it goes to show you that when you're trying to quote unquote break the format, right? You don't have to come up with something completely new. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You you just have to sand the edges of the wheel so it rolls a little faster. And that's what Brad and Autumn were able to do. They made some tweaks to the decks that they knew really well. They found key innovations to help the matchups that they needed help in. And it paid off for them. And it's it's just really nice to see that happen. You know, sometimes, sometimes the person with the best deck doesn't do that well, right? You know, Magic is a game of variance. And we saw people bring innovative decks. It was clear their innovations were good. It was clear they were well-practiced with their decks. And they're first and second in the tournament. Great stuff. I will say this. We talked about the decks that we would play in this tournament. And uh, the deck that I said that I would probably just audible to myself to at the end ended up winning it. And I'm not saying it's the best deck, but it was Demir Control. Um, it's a deck that just like when I look at it on paper, I'm like, yeah, that's what I want to be doing in Magic. I, and I, Overall, I, I don't think that deck either. did that well. And Brad, I, went, he probably didn't. Brad went undefeated in Historic with the Blue White deck. Which, and I, I don't think he was one of the X2s after the Swiss. So he either went, he either he must have gone either five three or six two. I guess he, he could have gone four four. There were some X fours in the top eight, but he, like he, I think he had a fine record with the Demir Control deck. Overall, though, if you look at the, the there was a matchup matrix that got uh, put out on Twitter. It was Demir Rogues that was the better performing Demir deck on the whole. Uh, so, and we talked about this last week in our preview that you know neither of us has been impressed by Demir Rogues in general, and uh, you know we generally stay away from it, but. It, it was clear that deck was sort of on the decline because the Demir control, the regular control deck was kind of rising. Rogues hadn't done well in a couple of weeks. And if people, you know, cut some of their escape cards and aren't as prepared, the Rogues deck is, you know, really powerful when it gets its synergies online. And it looks to be the case that this was a pretty good weekend to be a, a Rogue player, even though, you know, it's always weird talking about this, the portion of the tournament that isn't the top eight because like it just doesn't get as much limelight. So I'm not sure if anybody who was playing Rogues was in that top eight. I know uh, PV took ninth on Breakers, and, and he was playing Rogues. I think I think um, one Rogue player did make top eight. Yeah, I, I think there was one. So the, the, the deck did quite well. I think its win yeah, rate was like you know, 55% Luca, Luca made a small it, sample. Luca made it with, uh, with Rogues. Yeah. Including so, this is the, the Zareth Sand build. It's becoming more yeah. and more popular, which I actually like this card a lot in this deck because A... Uh, it, I always lose to it, and B, I did think the card, ne- the deck needed one more like powerful thing to do. You, if you get what I'm trying to say by that, one more like this card can win a game on its own or take over a game on its own kind of thing. Yeah, and it, it's also a card that makes your early creatures really threatening. A lot of the time, you could just, especially when you had escape cards, you know, it, it, before if you didn't have escape cards, you kind of needed to kill the crabs and the and the you know thought thief whatever, Soaring Thought Thief and Thieves Guild Enforcers, the, these mopey creatures, you wanted to kill them because you didn't want your opponent to mill you and get to seven, eight cards in your graveyard. And then we figured out that if we just boarded a bunch of escape cards, they would mill you into them, and then you would just spam your escape cards as often as you possibly could and shrink your graveyard that way. And then you just got to kind of ignore their first couple turns almost every game. 
And uh, that was a problem. I think part of the reason Zerathstan has been good is because it's a card that makes you respect to those creatures. Because if you don't respect them, they're going to Zerathstan you, and you're going to fucking die. Yeah. Uh, I always joke about this because uh, I played a lot of limited of this format, and every single time in limited that I played against a blue-black rogues deck, they always had Zerathstan. And this isn't limited. Like, they always had it. So I always had to start playing around it as much as I possibly could. And, like, I just never had it in my decks that I was always like, uh, what's, what's the word <laughs> looking for here? Very, like, envious and salty. That, that was, that's always it seems true when, when you're a person who plays a, a good amount of limited. And I remember it being the same way when I was playing a lot more of it. You know, over the course of a season, you know, three months, you're doing a lot of drafts, seals, whatever. There's always some really good rare that you have way less than average and rares that you have, you've had way more often than average. And whenever you lose to people that have the rares that you've had way less than average, you're always really salty. You're just like, I fucking hate you. I never have this stupid card. Yeah. It's like, I never get to open Warm Coil Engine and Scars of Mirrodin, but my opponents just always Warm Coil me because they're pieces of fucking shit. It's like if you had the Magical Online account and you could see exactly how many copies of the cards, you'd have like one Zerath <laughs> Sand, but like 11 of another good rare. And you're like, oh, they just, and, and your opponents just always have it. You're like, I'm not convinced this card's actually in the set. It's not all my <laughs> yeah, opponents, yeah. just get it, you know, kind of thing. So uh, lots of cool things coming out of the uh, Zendikar Rising Championships this weekend. No, like, besides the decks that we've talked about, no other really big, like, surprises, right, from this weekend. You know, we didn't really expect anyone to kind of break the mold. Yeah, you know, I, I thought there was some new. potential in historic for people to innovate. Like, I, I was I was hoping to see some more Godver's Gift kind of well, stuff. There was some there was some cool decks. There was um, I know Yol Larson and yeah, uh, and, Kai um, and then we're playing the green blue like untap all my perks. Paradox Engine, the, the Paradox Engine uh, deck, and that deck looked actually really cool. And, and they it, did pretty well with it. Yeah, I think one of the I think they were like five two and four three. I think that Yol and and Kai so nine and five. You know. Pretty good record, obviously, you know, super small sample size, but the deck looked really cool. Uh, there, there's definitely more room to explore in Historic, but at this point, Standard uh, standard looks pretty well solved. You know, you can play with it, and the metagame is always going to shift a little bit week to week, but we're basically at the end of it. I think previous season for um, Call Times starts, you know, early January, and uh, so we're basically done with Standard at this point, but Historic looking pretty cool. Um I'm a little disappointed with the lack of impact from uh, Kaladesh Remastered, but honestly, like, not that surprised. I remember at the time people talking about how Kaladesh was, like, one of the most powerful standard, you know, sets ever printed. And honestly, like, I never quite got that because the, the cards, like, the cards don't translate into older formats nearly as well. They were, it was, it was more that Kaladesh was really powerful relative to the sets around it. And that let Kaladesh cards dominate those respective standard environments. Yeah, Kaladesh was the first in the long line of sets that started to come after it, like Throne of Eldraine and stuff like that, where the cards were just more powerful overall, and we weren't used to that norm yet, so it, it made it look even more powerful in comparison yeah. when everything around it's like a C on power level, and you're like an A-. minus. I, I guess it's also true that we're biased now from all, the last year of stuff, but you, you didn't even... Yeah. Did, did you really see, like, Kaladesh cards being played a lot in Modern when, you know, three years ago when they were printed? Like, no, nobody's ever Not tried... Really. I mean, like... The only ones that really have made a, a big impact, really, like the, it, when I think about it in my mind, is like the cat combo got kind of thrown into. Yes, it. yeah, cat, cat com- and cat combo has, has seen play in modern or whatever, but it hasn't been dominant. You know, it hasn't. You know, it it's been good at, at different points and not good at other points. So, uh, uh, like fatal the, fatal push, you know, like that, uh, like that card specifically, just because it's a very efficient removal yeah, spell. That that one was the fatal push as a standalone card was obviously great and and it actually fundamentally reshaped the modern format. 
So uh, that that's sort of an exception. But when you think about Kaladesh, you think about the the vehicle scards and like scrap heap scrounger, and you, you think about energy. And while energy you know strategies were dominant during Kaladesh's time in standard, the energy cards have yet to make any impact in any other format because, unsurprisingly, attuned with Aether and servant of the conduit are not good cards. Like they're not inherently powerful cards. That what they what they are is cards that are at a reasonable rate for a standard format that gave the deck a, a much, much better mana base than any other deck around it in all of standard. So they got to play three and four colors, you know, cleanly. And some of the other energy cards were actively good rate cards for standard that aren't good rate cards in older formats. Things like Rogue Refiner and World of Virtuoso, um, especially Rogue Refiner. Like, that's a big example. That card was awesome in standard. It's just, you know, not really playable in other formats. Yeah. I think it's a little bit of pioneer play. Yeah, it's just yeah. not a good enough rate. So, like that's because, you what... know, people often people often ask us that when Pioneer first came out. You know, and Jerry Thompson wrote an article very famously, like you know, Aetherworks Marvel is going to be the best deck, and we, you and I, both were very against this from the beginning, just because of that exact thing. We were like, these cards are not good enough by themselves to be good good in this format. Yeah, and if the dual ends had been better in the sets surrounding Kaladesh, I don't think energy decks would have been nearly as dominant, but they were able to adapt to changing metagames, you know, so easily because they were so flexible because of their good mana. It was just, I get to be a mid-range deck with these energy cards, and then I fill out the last 20 cards of my deck with whatever I need. Uh, And the other point in their favor was that Harness Lightning was the best removal spell, and that's just not true in older formats. I remember uh, R&D making a, making an ex- uh, a thing that they talked about, you know, how did energy get so away from us? They said that they didn't realize how much Harness Lightning was just actually Terminate, you know, just actually two mana kill a creature. And then this is from me, this is not from, from them, but I don't, th- I think people, e- even still, until up till it got banned and t- people talked about being, how good a tune with Aether was, that card was unreal good. Yeah, like, but it was only good. good because the mana and the rest of the format mm-hmm. was so bad. Yeah, and you got to utilize the fast lands very well because your deck was very efficient and you had good cheap cards and like you needed to be able to you know make all your colors and stuff. And then you had these really good energy outlets. So like, because here's the thing: Lay of the Land is not a good Magic card. Like it's just not. You know, like yeah, it's just not a good card. Even you know it serves its purpose, but when it has when your man is bad and it has like a a backdoor plus for your deck. Like you're playing, you know, this and Rogue Refiner and all stuff to put, to put into, you know, uh, Whirler Virtuoso or something like that, just to get a whole bunch of one ones, or to put into an Aetherworks Marvel or something like that. Like, I remember playing that deck because you had to, right? Like, if you played in that format and you wanted to win, like, if, if anyone remembers the Invitational when, like, you know, Standard was literally just like eighty percent that deck. If you wanted to win, you had to play this deck. Anyone remembers that? I remember that if I attuned on one or my opponent tuned on one and I didn't, I felt like I had lost the game. Like I, like, I already felt super far behind. Yeah, because all their cards were just better than yours for the rest of the game. And and it's not like they had to like use that two energy immediately. It was like, it, well, if that were the case, then like it would only be their next card was better than your next card, and then you were back to even. But the, like, there was always, well, if I make this move, then they get to react and use their energy in Y-Way. If I zag, then they get to zig. You know, uh, like I always have to act first, and then their additional energy lets them, do, you know, do whatever they need, provided they have the you know the, the right cards if their their draw cooperates. So, you know, uh, I, it's it's very clear that Kaladesh, while you know a great and really powerful standard set, has not been a set that really impacted uh, older formats. So, a little disappointed there. Uh, I was what's hoping the to see. What's the saying that we always talk about with like movies and TV shows? Like it didn't age well. 
Yeah. It's, it, it feels yeah. like Kaladesh didn't age well for how much, you know, we were like, oh, the sky is falling, like when the, when the set came out. Yeah. And everybody was like really excited when the set rotated. It's like, finally, we're free of this. Like, God, I will be yeah. so happy to see Throne of Eldraine rotate from standard. It's so far same, away. It's like same. six years it's, away from now that it's going to happen. Speaking of, I know it feels like it's going to be forever, right? It's like, can we just can we just like forget 2020 and 2019 happened? Period. Speaking can we of just other like sets, agreed, can we all, like, all agree to hibernate? I just want to like have everybody just go to sleep for like eight months. We'll all wake up well rested. The virus will be dead, and we can just kind of kind of reset human society. Let's just take a let's take a nice hard reset. Unplug ourselves from the wall. You know, yeah. <laughs> let, let it sit for for eight months and, and plug it back in and everything will be fine. Yeah, just get some hyperbaric chambers, whatever, yeah, exactly. But speaking of other sets and other formats, uh, some showcases happened this weekend. I know you and I wanted to talk about a few of them. Um, there was a modern and a pioneer showcase along with a modern super qualifier. Well, uh, mo- they don't call them super qualifiers anymore. They're just the, the championship qualifiers. So for the net, for the call time. Uh, championship. Yeah, just to make sure the, the, the terms are correct. But uh, before we go to Mar, let's just start with the Pioneers since it's, it's a standalone one. And uh, I know that, you know, you and I have a love for the deck that won, which is just, you know, the, the mono green Planeswalker deck. But there was a there was a three of in this deck that's normally a four of that made you lose your mind. Yeah, they're only playing three Nissa who shakes the world tannin and two Elder Gargroth. Like, I get that, like, they don't want to play that many fives, but I cannot imagine playing fewer than four Nissas in this deck. It is mind-boggling to me that you would want to do this. I know I'm going apeshit over somebody who literally won a major tournament, but it is... I'm... Uh, I'm just shocked. Shocked and appalled. The most appalling thing to me about all of this is that people at home don't get to see your face while you're talking about this, and I do. Y'all can't see the anger seething off of Ross right now, or just the disappointment in his face. It's both. It's a mixture of anger and disappointment. It sounds like my dad, but anyway, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) But no, but uh, but yeah. So like uh, again, Mono Green won this tournament. Um, Very standard stuff going on here through most of the top eight, right? No real big surprises. The key thing you notice is is the three Tormod scripts in the sideboard. And that's a clear nod to saying, like, I need to beat this um, this Oopsell Spells deck. I've actually talked about this in the past, where you and I talked about this deck, especially when it first came out, where I often said that, you know, we, we joke about this. Uh, Aspiring Spike won a tournament with this recently, and he said he might be the only person to ever win a tournament like this without ever sideboarding in the entire tournament, because that was a cool thing about this deck. This deck doesn't actually sideboard ever, because the entire sideboard is just a Karn, the Great Creator package. And I said, after playing with this deck through a couple of things myself, that, like, I wasn't 100% sold that you had to have all 15 cards in the sideboard be for Karn. And I didn't say that it was wrong, but I said that there's room in the future that you could cut down, you know, a few of the sideboard pieces and give yourself extra copies of a card. Because, like, this makes sense, right? If you have three Tormal scripts in your sideboard and you really want them, you can leave one in your sideboard so that your four Karns are still a Tormal script on turn three or whatever turn you play it. Plus, you just get to put two more into your deck where you might naturally just draw the damn thing. On yeah, like turn one or and, two, and, and you know, they have it. They have a Grafdigger's Cage too, so they could even bring in all three Torment scripts. Or uh, I don't. I, I you imagine you still want a zero in your sideboard, but yeah. I am. I personally, I think if I were to sideboard in that matchup, would bring in the one cage and two crypts, so that my Karn is a four mana piece of hate instead of a five mana piece of hate. Um. So, but you know, regardless, like that, it's clear that like they wanted extra graveyard hate, and I completely agree with you. Like you, you should be looking for in in any sort of metagame that narrows at all. You know, if the Pioneer metagame becomes really about four or five decks and you have the tutor targets or the wish targets that you need for those matchups 
and then you know maybe a couple others that are really important in certain lesser play matchups. You should be looking to target you know more important matchups with the actually sideboarding. And that's actually what the other monogreen player in this top eight did in fifth place. You see three copies of Grafter's Cage and one Crypt, so they went to, for the other split. Uh, but also three copies of Gather Courage. That one's a little weird to me. Like I guess against like burn decks, you get to protect your mana creature, which is kind of cool. There is one specific card that Gather Courage is great against that the burn decks play and is good against you. It's Searing Blood. Searing Blood, yeah. Countering a Searing Blood for one mana because they don't even get the three to you unless the creature dies with Searing Blood. It's not Searing Blaze. Yep. So that that's just awesome. Yeah, because the creature has to die to trigger the damage. Yeah. So uh, I bet that specifically it's so good against Searing Blood. I have an unnatural love for this card. Like un Gather Courage. Yes. So you've heard me talk about this before. Uh, probably like the best record that I ever put up on the Pro Tour was at the Team Pro Tour in like 2007 or whatever. The, yeah, when the you have the Simic uh, uh, Graft deck. In, uh, I had, th- I think, three Gather Courage main in my deck because all that formats removal was like, most of it was damage-based. You know, it was Electrolyze, Helix, Savage Twister, cards like that. Like a, that, that was... That was the deck that I was having problems beating is like I would tap out for like a three or four mana creature and they'd just be like, okay, electrolyze it or like lightning helix it. And so we started playing Gather Courage is just force of will, you know, because I could just tap my creature and counter yeah, thing just by making all your creatures are green. Like. And then because like another way that we've, we found our way, another way that we found ourselves losing the format is that that format actually was one of the first sets that I can remember where like a lot of the creatures were their stats started getting better more to what you're used to today. You had like three fours for three mana. You had five fives for four. Yeah, like Watch Wolf was in that block. Uh, Burning Tree Shaman, three mana, three, four with, with a positive sl- ability. Yeah, Rumbling, Rumbling Slum, Slum was like a five, yeah. five for four. Yeah. So, and, I'm in a, and I was playing a deck that was playing one ones for one, two twos for two, and four fours for four. So I was getting outclassed on the battlefield at a decent at a decent rate, but you know I had a couple other ways to you know win. My stuff would snowball quite a bit, but having gather courage to block in certain situations was very very good. Um, not to mention that it was like forcible in this format. In fact, there was actually this one match where um, I knew my opponent had like exactly electrolyze or lightning helix or something like that, and I played in a way that made it look like it was going to blow me out. And uh, it was against a Spanish team. I remember this because, like, I think if I remember right of that tournament, they, they you had flags that you could put up in front of your stuff for your countries. If I remember, I don't remember if that was whatever, it, or it had it, it had it on your match slip or something. I don't remember, but they were Spanish. And um, I'll never forget because it was it came down to me versus my opponent for the, for the match. And I like walked to them into this play, and he like you know tapped his mana. He like you know pointed the removal spell at my thing, and I tapped to my creature in response. And I watched. His, because uh, you know me, I watch my opponents a lot. I watched one of his teammates who, like, especially the one that, like, I could tell really had a fix. He was, like, kind of playing for the guy at this point. He was, like, you know, every team has a one member that's more prepared than everybody else, and they'll, they'll lean on them a little bit more. Yeah. I, I watched him realize what was about to happen because of how confident I just tapped my creature in response. And I hear him just start spouting off in Spanish, but then, the you know, the English gather courage comes in the middle of this, and I wish I could do a good impersonation of it. And he's just like, blah, 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 gather courage, blah, 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 in, like, Spanish. And I'm just like, I like I could not stop getting that shit-hitting grin on my because, face. as I Because you know he's he's screaming in Spanish, and you know it's not appropriate for him to be probably, screaming those words in English. Yeah, it's probably <laughs> very profanity laden, and he's just yeah. like, oh my god, we just Mother lost a fucking gather just ran head first in a fucking stupid-ass gather courage. I can't believe it. What a piece of shit with his pile of crap deck playing one mana one once. I fucking hate this game. Yeah, and, and that was like... Obviously, it's not the reason I picked the deck, but that was a nice add-on is the fact that my deck just infuriated my opponents because they were like, I can't believe I'm losing to this pile of garbage. Like, this was a good draft deck. 
that I, you know, easily exoed at a pro tour with, you know, I just like, yeah, my deck's just so much better than everybody else because it just fit where it needed to fit. Anyway, um, the uh, long tangent there, the end of the, uh, talking about the Pioneer Showcase, I know that you were super interested in the eighth and ninth place list because it seems to be like there might be a new mono red deck on the... Yeah, the, the, this deck did well ac- across multiple tournaments this weekend in Pioneer and, you know, putting somebody in the top eight of, of the marquee event for the weekend for the format looks really nice. And it's, it's a pretty straightforward mono red aggro deck. To me, it looks a lot like the mono red prowess deck in Pioneer, but the Obosh version that is playing, you know, Bunker Giant like this one is a good number of creatures. Honestly, like this deck looks like it could play Obosh. I see one Shatter Skull Smashing. You could make that a land and four Lightning Strike as the only even card in the main. So if you wanted to get rid of Lightning Strike and change your sideboard around, you could Obosh with this deck. They, I guess, didn't want to do that. I do love me some Obosh with Spikefield Hazard. Or not, um, I guess I was playing it with, um, with Torbren, which is even a little bit better in standard. Uh, this was a couple months ago, but even with Obosh, like turning that card into a shock is really nice. Um, but like the, it, it looks a lot like the, the burn deck. It doesn't get to play Luris. Instead is basically, is basically playing Bone Crusher Giant instead of Luris. Isn't playing Viachino Pyromancer. So it has to cut down to two Wizards of Lightning. But the, the addition is really four copies of Collective Defiance. Not really sure exactly what this card is doing. I know I know this was a techie card for red decks in the Inverter era. Because, right, this, this is the biggest card that stands out for sure. Yeah, yeah. Because it, w- with uh, the little-known mode of target player discards all the cards in their hand and draws that many cards, you know, you could if they went for a quick Inverter, which they really wanted to do in the matchup against Mono Red, uh, then Collective Defiance could just get them. But it also dealt four damage to Kalidus and was also a burn spell upstairs. So all three modes were relevant in the matchup. Um, and, and it was really, really good against them. Hasn't really seen play in Pioneer since the Inverter ban, uh, but sees play here as a four of in the main deck. So, like, you know, a key card for the deck, uh, and, and then just playing, you know, a bunch of burn spells. It looks like a pretty typical mono red deck. It was just weird for me to, this deck to me sort of showed up out of nowhere. And I, I don't really, when I look at it on paper, I don't see exactly like, what it's doing that is significantly better than what the Boros deck is doing, while the Boros deck has a, obviously like you know a much greater pedigree. Um, so I, I still don't like I don't really get it. Still, maybe I'll have to play with it to understand. But this is a deck now, I guess. Uh, yeah, it's a cool one. Um, I like the fact that it has to it gets to play a very low land count since you play for Spike Field Hazard in this deck. It's if you don't count it as land, like you know, if you put it in the instant slot, like they do with the the way this deck is presented to you, it has seventeen lands in it, so it's technically twenty one uh, mana sources in the deck. I like having my mana sources being that low because I never want to draw like the fourth land in this deck. Yeah, there's a lot of virtual card advantage here, right? Because of Spikefield Hazard and Shatter Skull Smashing and oh, Ramonet Ruins. There's also the Smashing, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like you're, you're literally only playing 13 mountains, but you have an effective 22 lands. So, yeah, the, uh, between that and then Bowman Courier and Light at the Stage and Bone Cursor Giant, though that inherent card advantage and the virtual card advantage, it's very clear that this deck is trying to play that sort of uh, marginal card advantage attrition game which is also what I think the Obosh red deck in Modern is doing, you know. Uh, and I've been, I've the one thing I will say is I've been impressed by that Modern deck. That when I first saw that deck emerge and saw it on paper, it did not look good to me. I was like, why? Are, why are you doing this? Like, you're never going to grind out, you know, other decks um, playing this way. But it actually does do a, like a pretty good job of playing attrition against any deck trying to interact with it. 
so I'm wondering if this deck is sort of operating on that same principle and, and just plays out better than it looks. Uh, the other thing I will say about Spikefield Hazard is you can sometimes nab an Uro on the way down when they play the Uro at three mana and the triggers are on the stack. If you Spikefield Hazard it, then it'll get exiled when it goes to get sacrificed uh, and you don't have to deal with it uh, on the way back. That is nice. That's just sort of an, an ancillary benefit of playing the card that it really helps to uh, contain one of the you know, most problematic cards for red decks in the entire metagame. Absolutely. And so let's go ahead and go and talk about the other showcase that we want to talk about from this weekend, which is Modern. And this one was won by uh, X-Whale, just a moto grinder to the T. Just puts up absurd results all the time online. And uh, they wanted the deck that I know is like really close to them. They, they tweet about this deck all the time. And I actually just want to kind of refer to this deck. I, I know it has a bunch of other uh, names, but it's pretty much just lands at this point, kind of like from the way that lands deck and legacy kind of looks. But, you know, since it's modern, we don't have some of those cards. It's it's amulet with without amulet. Yeah, we call it Selesnia Titan. I do yeah. think that the, the it is an analogous deck to the lands deck from legacy. Yeah. Um, I hear uh, Green White Reclaimer is the way some people call it, but yeah. it's also an el- like a big time. Oh, Reclaimer, Reclaimer is deck. a huge part of it. And I've got to yeah. tell you, I- I've played with this deck a little bit, especially on Versus, several times. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite good. I-, I think this is the premier Primeval Titan deck in the format. I think it has usurped um, uh, Amulet. Yeah, I, th- I think the-, the rise of these Uro decks in Modern has slowed the format down. And this deck is a lot more stable, a lot better when people are interacting with you than Amulet is. Uh, because, you know, sometimes when Amulet, like, when the pieces don't come quite together or your opponent disrupts one or two cards, your your draw just looks really weird. Because, like, you know, maybe you have these bounce lands, but you don't have the Amulet, or you have, like, two Amulets, but no bounce land to go with it. And, you know, uh, or you just don't have a Titan, because and your deck is very threat light outside of that. You know, this deck, because of Eladomri's Call, has more, you know, copies of Titan. Because of Reclaimer, it finds its Field of the Dead's naturally more often. You know, plays two field of the dead main deck where I think most amulet decks are still playing one. Uh, it gets to, you know, it gets to play more basic lands uh, and find its basic lands, you know, more reliably to help play against Blood Moon. And Aladomri's Call means you know, like you find your cyber dancers to Blood Moon more reliably. So all of these things really help it in a metagame that is designed to play longer games and be disruptive. Whereas Amulet has those really fast draws that help you against opposing big mana decks and combo matchups. Those aren't as relevant right now. So this to me is the premier Titan deck in the format. I fucking love it. And I've got to say, whoever like thought I should play Elvish Reclaimer on turn one and then play Flagstones to Tricare on turn two and sack the Flagstones to my Reclaimer is a genius. And I love you forever because that draw is just awesome. Especially because like you might think like, oh, like are you going to really find like, you know, your Ghost Coder or your Pajukabog on turn three, like, you know, or turn two? In some matchups, yes. Um, you know, if you're playing against Tron or Graveyard deck. But a lot of the time, you're just finding another Flagstones and then ramping again <laughs> the next turn so that you're literally just turn four tightening off of just a Reclaimer. And your Reclaimer is then just a 3-4. <laughs> so your one mana 3-4 also was a double ramp spell. <laughs> it's like, I will play my Reclaimer on turn one and then I will activate it for the next few turns until I Primeval Titan you. Yeah. yeah. All the while my lands are doing things. Yeah. And then the game is over. You still have the Dryad draws. Like this is, uh, you know, the one Skyclave Apparition as a tutor target. This this deck is it's starting I think this to become really good. streamlined. Yeah, I think this deck is very very good. I think it's very well made. It's very well thought of, and like it's it's still you can still pick and choose little parts here. You know, you can change some of the lands here or there to kind of like if something else comes up that you need to start beating. And I know I made the the analogy to it, but 
I really feel like Modern is starting to look and feel a lot more like Legacy did for a few years, and that this is just like the the litmus test for Modern that Lands was for a few years in Legacy, where like if you couldn't beat Lands, like you probably shouldn't be playing, you know, because like a lot of the best players are playing Lands and they're very good with that deck and they know all the lines. Because I will say this. While the deck is very straightforward and doesn't have a lot of spells in it, it can also be very complicated in your lines. Not as complicated as, say, like, Amulet is, where Amulet's like a freaking math puzzle a lot of the times, <laughs> or it's like some, uh, what's the meme I'm thinking about? Uh, yeah, yeah, what's the, 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 the woman the, with the, all the, the symbols, black, or the, the Charlie on the blackboard. Yeah, that one, or, uh, yeah, the one from, uh, from uh, it's, always sunny. it's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and he's like looking at like that one, or the one from Hangover, where he's at the, you know, oh, the blackjack yeah, table and all the math equations start going. <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel when I look at a good, like when I see, you know, a good amulet player playing Hamlet, I'm like, I can't even, I, I, I just can't do that in my head. I haven't, this is, again, I, I just don't have that capability. Another deck you probably shouldn't go into a tournament cold with, because you're going to also forget what your lands are at that point. You have, like, I think twenty something different lands in the deck or whatever. Good luck remembering all of them. Yeah, yeah. So something um, like that. definitely think this deck is great. Uh, it's really, I I think you should be in the conversation of it's just the best deck in modern right now. It, it's definitely up there. And to me, when you when you're talking about best deck in modern, you're generally talking about what are the pillars of the of the metagame right now, and what is the best deck within each pillar. And Primeval Titan is a pillar. And this is the best Primeval Titan deck. So it's definitely in the conversation for best deck. If you want to be playing a big mana deck, it's the one I think you should be playing. That said, this weekend, it did see a little bit of a resurgence from your deck of choice, you know, a few years ago. And that is Mono Green Tron, which took second place in the uh, Showcase Challenge and also took fourth place in the modern, you know, Call Time Championship Qualifier over the weekend. Nothing, you know crazy different about these decks relative to lists we've seen historically. They are both featuring Karn the Great Creator. I know that, you know, a couple of years ago that there was a point of contention. Do we want baby Karn in our big Tron decks? Or is that just an Eldrazi Tron thing? It looks like at this point, baby Karn is just a staple. Uh, I, I don't think I see big Tron decks without it. Well, yeah, I like a lot of what they've done here. They're, they're making it more about you're less of a control deck and you're more of just pushing on people with big, dumb, colorless stuff. Cause like there's no more oblivion stone in this list. And oh, you're wow. looking at, you, you do see three in the, in the list from the, the qualifier that, so this one, the one from the qualifier is a little bit more classic. You also see main deck relic, uh, and oblivion stone. I hadn't really, I, I guess like, I don't think I've ever seen a Tron list without oblivion stone. And yeah, if you wanted to go down the line of having more stuff like that, if you wanted to play this version, then this version has an all this dust main, and you can maybe even find room for like a second and have that be your oblivion stone. I am a little surprised not to see an oblivion stone in the sideboard. Yeah, right? something to, to kind to of wish, wish for, for. With, wish for with Karn. You do this one Mist Cutter Hydra is also like kind of weird, <laughs> but I guess against control decks is pretty cool. Yeah, it's just a fireball. Yeah, for, yeah, for them, which is it, it, that's actually pretty cool in some spots. Yeah, but, I, I, I get it. Overall, I, I like this deck a lot. Um, at this, It feels almost like the Pioneer version of the deck where you're just trying to ramp out a really big Planeswalker and do something degenerate with that because you're looking at four, uh, I mean, the eight Karns and then four Ugins and the fact that you have two the Spirit Dragon and two the Ineffable uh, Ugins, which is pretty cool because it allows you to cast a lot of your color spells very quickly. Like you can churn through your stars, spheres, and maps quickly. Or, you, can, you know, you have Spatial Contortion Main and stuff like that. So you can do that for free and some of the other stuff that's going on here, or if you wish for, if you have that out and in Karn out, you can start wishing for like liquid metal coating and ensnaring bridge and stuff like that and make it, you know, a lot cheaper. Yeah. I've been, uh, 
I know I've played a little bit with different like colo stacks in different formats, and Ugin that um, uh, static ability can really be super powerful, and it can even just get you to you know your Ulamogs or whatever really quickly. Like turn three Ugin minus kill your thing, untap Ulamog you is a pretty nice turn three, turn four. Yeah, and like not to mention you know even against some of the the aggro decks of the format, which were your worst matchups, burn prowess, those kind of things are usually your worst matchups. Is you can turn three, you can go Ugin kill something, spatial contortion something. Yeah. You, know, well, you, also, you still yeah. have a lot of like busted draws like that, or you can go like, Ugin, I still have a mana left over, so let me play one of these Spheres or Stars for free, crack it for free, see if I can't keep going. You know, maybe even get a Sylvan Scrying off, you know, because I have a green mana. You know, just, it's little, little things like that that go a long way in a tournament because they're going to make one game a little bit different here or there. It's an extra like 5% over the span of a tournament that you do really cool stuff. When Ugin the Ineffable got printed along with Karn the Great Creator, I got the alternate versions of both of them just in case for Tron decks in the future. So I'm ready. I'm loaded and ready if this if this is a deck that's playable again. I will also say, you know, when you when I think about Tron now, I think it's at the point where it's one of those decks that isn't permanently a great choice. It has to have the right metagame because it's, it's just a little underpowered relative to the rest of the format after the last couple of years of printings. And if you look at the metagame right now, the prowess decks that used to be a lot more aggressive if they were mono red, you still see a little bit of is it, but for the most part, you're seeing that Rakdos prowess deck with shadows and scourges. That one has discard spells, which you know they're pretty, they can be pretty good against Tron, but they don't put you under as much pressure, and that's the most important thing that those red decks do against you is kill you quickly. If the game goes long enough, you have the you know so much redundancy and so much card selection and cantrips, like you're gonna do your thing, you're gonna assemble Tron and start playing big you know expensive threats. And so if they're, you know, if they're not able to pressure you in the same way and you don't deal yourself any damage, which is nice, you're ne- you never set up their Scourge for them. Uh, I, I think that, that that shift, the rise of that Rakdos deck, is probably one of the reasons that we're seeing Tron sneak back into the metagame right now. And, and you nailed it. The rise of that deck, you said earlier the format has slowed down overall, and it really, really has. You know, you see, we're going to talk about a little bit with some of the decks that are coming up next, uh, even though the third place deck is actually a, a bad matchup for Tron, but some of the decks we're going to talk about later, that's just like blue soup decks have become very popular in yeah. the format. So you're seeing I think a lot they're, of decks they're the most are, popular decks. To yeah, me. they're getting to turn, we're getting to turn five without the game being quote unquote decided yet. No one's dead yet kind of thing. Also, the um, Ponza deck isn't really played as much as it used to oh, be. That deck has fallen off a cliff. Yeah, and that deck was at one point in time, arguably like, people were like, this is the deck to play in modern right now. This is like the best deck. like, it is really hard to be a Tron player in a format where people are casting Stone Rain for us. <laughs> like, let me tell you, there's some videos of me doing it. It's not fun. <laughs> it's not easy. Yeah. I don't like it. And we did just allude to that third place deck. So let's uh, l- l- let me let me ask you. L- tell me if you've heard this before. Uh, this player did well with this deck. Who is it, and what deck is it? Uh, Caleb Shearer with Storm. What does he win? It could be a boat. It could be anything. But yes, Caleb Shearer showed up a storm in a, in a in a format that looks like might be a good spot for storm. Uh, it blows my mind. Yeah, I, I know when when we think of storm, you know, it has such this such a historical pedigree across a, a wide range of formats that I always think of a deck that is very a fast combo deck, right? And I want to play fast combo decks when other people are racing and they don't have much disruption. And Storm is going to be, you know, the fastest kid on the block. But Modern Storm, I, I've come to think as is actually a different animal. Modern Storm always disappoints me in terms of its speed. Yeah, you can kill on turn two and turn three, but it's pretty hard to do. 
and you, it usually involves landing a creature, especially your turn three kills, or almost always turn two, you know, Brawler, Electromancer, turn three kill you, and those creatures just never live. So you don't actually get those kills that often, but this deck is very resilient. You have so much card advantage. You sideboard into this pieces of the puzzle plan that's been stock for ages. You can mid-range them with like empty and grape shot them out for, you know, five or six after attacking them with a bit. You draw cards, a ton of cards. You have the other creatures that are lying around and, you know, uh, plink around for a little bit of damage. They still have to figure out how to deal with your graveyard because past inflames is great, but you're not reliant on it. So their graveyard hate is something they bring in, but it's not something that's ever going to shut you down, which is always a great place to be. You know, you have a little bit of disruption where you're sometimes bringing in some removal, some counter spells. You got remands in the main. So you can always play a much longer game than I think you know, almost any other Storm deck uh, ever has has been able to do. Uh, and, and I'm always impressed by that. So this slowing down of the format, one, like I think Storm is pretty good against blue decks, surprisingly, uh, because they just don't pressure you enough. And then the other slow decks that come in, the green-white titans, the Tron decks... Those are decks that, you know, you can race still. Your turn three, turn four kills are going to be very good against. So it ends up being good in these slower metagames where historically Storm hasn't been. But Modern Storm, just just a, a different animal. And not a ton going on, you know, differently here than we've historically seen. But there is one slight innovation that I really like. And that is two copies of Salindi Vision. This is the, the double face card that's like, you know, sort of a worse peer through depths which we've seen in Storm decks before. Um, you know, I've often seen one copy of it. And, but two here gives you a higher land count. Caleb also playing 18 lands. I think I think historically I've seen 17 in Storm decks. But so going up to 18 and playing two Salindi Visions. So to me, that's sort of like a 19 kind of land count. So going high on lands, that's also, that's another sign that you know you're going to play long games. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, I think the mana base is actually just better now, too. It's got four River Glide Pathway in it. Just another Red Blue Dual Land that helps out. Note that that's not, this is not a typical mana base. He has actually built the mana base in a very specific way because of the two copies of Boil on the sideboard. So this is be this is a you know, a Boil Storm deck. There are st- still several basic islands, but those are the only islands in the deck. You don't see any copies of Steam Vents. Yeah, he's got three islands in his actual deck. Yeah, because I was going to say... Uh, I, I'm glad that you picked up on where I was going with that, and I realized when you like you got excited when I brought it up because I was like, yeah, there's no steam vents in this deck. Yeah, yeah, zero copies of steam vents because they're boiling. I know I've seen um, aspiring spike play like an is it control deck that has boil on the sideboard, uh, and it's playing with like temple of enlightenment and pathway and spiral canal and cascade bluffs and things like that. Uh, you know, a, a ton of different uh, non island you know lands, and that really helps you out against the the blue decks. Sometimes you you can like try to bring in boil against the titan decks and like have them play dryad and then you boil. You you really shouldn't be trying to do that, especially out of storm where you like playing against titan decks. But against the blue decks, now you have this really powerful just sort of you know haymaker of a card that even out of a de- of storm deck that usually isn't playing you know sort of normal magic games you know play creatures attack block kill stuff uh, kind of stuff. The boil it's gonna win because it means that they just like can't really cast counter spells and you're gonna be able to go off. Um, so, uh, cool. Look, those are the two innovations that Cable has made. So not, again, not trying to reinvent the wheel, just updating his storm deck for a favorable, favorable metagame, you know, realizes that the big matchup he needs to take down are these blue soup decks, realizes that he's pretty well positioned, doesn't have to deal with, you know, a lot of other fast combo decks, uh, and, and takes advantage. And, uh, I do think storm is well positioned now. If you're somebody who likes it, 
this now is the time to pick up on it. This is just another one of those modern decks that needs a favorable metagame. It's never going to be you know great week in week out, but right now it is the time to be storming. Yeah, absolutely, and that's not a good time for me. Generally, the decks I play or like to play are not very good against Storm. <laughs> At least in uh, modern. In Legacy, it's a, it's a different animal. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I've played Grixis Delver in, in modern before. The thing is, you, the format's passed you by. You yeah, know? yeah. It's just, um, just not a reasonable deck. Rounding out the rest of this top eight, you see a couple of the uh, the white-based creature decks. It the the Heliod decks. Yeah, the green-white Heliod deck or the mono-white yeah, Heliod these have been picking up those sort of Ethervile Heliod decks, and this is the this one's from um, SM Beaster, who is uh, Sam Party, and you know, no stranger to creature combo decks. He was a, one of the Pod masters back in the days of Pod. That's where uh, he really I, made his name. Yeah, yeah. I think at one point he said he had registered you know over a thousand matches with the deck on Magic Online. You know, was absolutely you know perhaps the Pod master. I should be saying instead of a Pod master, but certainly a if not the. Uh, and here coming with a, you know, a vile-based version of the deck. I know that there were mono-white versions of this deck. He's splashing red here for a couple copies of Magus of the Moon on the sideboard and a couple copies of Boil. Pretty easy splash to, you know, put in. He's only he's even only played one Sacred Foundry, you know. Yeah, well, it allows you to play four Sunbaked Canyon, which I think is just better. Yeah, honestly, you would you would probably play these in the mono-white version of the deck anyway. Yeah, you know, that's, you would, that's what I was kind of alluding at. Yeah, yeah I think you, you would split them, them anyway. up, right? You would play a couple of Horizon Canopies and one of the black-white one, whatever it is. So you don't randomly get needled or something. Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> which is like, you know, whatever. So instead, you just play four of the one that's your splash color, play four Arid Mesa, and then one Sacred Foundry, so you're dealing yourself a little extra damage. The one basic mountain is like your one real concession, a little awkward in your Oriok Champion deck, but, you know, one red source isn't, isn't going to cost you that much, especially when you have Vile. And then your your four caverns also, you know, they cast Magus the Moon. This deck is, is mostly all humans. I think uh, every creature except Walking Ballista and Skyclave Apparition oh, and Heliod. And Archon of Amaria. Oh, actually, not that many humans. Uh, yeah, it's, give, it's, give it's, her Runes as a cleric, too. I'm so used to Mother of Runes being a human, but Giver isn't. Uh, otherwise, it would be like absurd in modern humans. So, good thing they didn't make that a human. But Oriok Champion, Ranger Captain, and Luminarch Aspirant are. And, you know, every so often, I'm sure you name the other things, especially with Heliod, which is so hard to remove from the battlefield. So, being able to just name God and resolve it through whatever your counterspell your opponent might have is is quite nice there. But uh, an interesting take on the deck. This is another one of those decks that like looks kind of weird on paper to me. Like, I like Collected Company, I like the mana acceleration from the green version of the deck. Uh, I like the spike feeder combo. It's just so easy to get infinite life, and that's quite good against most of the decks in the format. Um, but I do agree that this deck has a significantly better aggro plan because of Luminarch Aspirant, which is a card I like quite a bit. I especially love just loading up counters on an Oriok Champion in matchups where that's hard to answer. Um, so th there's some things to like about this, you know, especially with the, with the innovation from the splash color. You, you can play around with that a little bit more. Uh, but not a deck I have a ton of experience with. I do like the Heliod decks, though. And when they started picking up a couple weeks ago, I was a little worried they were they were going to be a flash in the pan, like, you know, that people would just react to them. But they've stayed, you know, putting up solid results week in, week out. So they look like they're here to stay. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And the other thing I wanted to mention, as we know, we haven't really talked about the Blue Soup decks much. They're, they're, they're kind of settled at this point that the one thing that's been changed is they've kind of gone back to Hour of Promise here. You know, for a while it was Hour of Promise there, then then it was all about time warping people, yeah. and it's back to this. Though I will say this. I know that one person who did really well, I, their name is escaping me right now, but they did really well this weekend on some of the qualifiers. They played this deck, and they've been playing Part the Veil. You mean Part the Water Veil? Part the Water Veil. Part the Veil, I think, is a is an emo band. But Part, yeah. part the Water Veil, the, the time walk that can also make your land that has to a awaken. creature. 
Yeah, awaken. Yeah, that that ability. Four blue, I didn't blue, play in that set. Take take another turn. You exile the part of the water veil, and it has awaken for six blue, blue, blue. I believe. Yeah, and so they were doing that kind of thing. It's it's a win condition in and of itself. So interesting to see. Uh, I mean, we're still in this place where you have all these different tiers of modern, like you said. And this one, this this isn't a Titan deck, like you said, but this is another Field of the Dead deck. And if you're in the Field of the Dead, this is one of the ones that might be able to keep up. The other ones, because you got three copies of Field of the Dead with Hour of Promise and Ren and Six and Uro and Explore and Life from Alone. Like, you're going to be making a lot of zombies in this version if you if that's the the game plan that's going to happen. Life from Alone. Yeah, this one, the, the one that's in sixth place has a life from the loan in the main. Uh, lots of stuff. You're seeing growth spirals. That's a weird. A ton of ways to really take advantage of Field of the Dead here. Life from the loan is cool with Ketria Triumph. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's 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 some sweet stuff. I mean, fetch lands in, in general. Yeah. Uh, you know, just making sure you can always get your Mystic yeah, Sanctuary. That, that, that's interesting. You also get to, when you dredge it, you can hit Uro for free. Yeah, you hit Uro, you can you can find a land that you're specifically trying to find. I, I don't you know, know if you know this, but Life in the Loam is like one of my favorite cards of all time. I did not know I, that. I've actually. never been a lands player. Uh, I, I've One of the reasons I loved Modern Dredge was that Life in the Loam Conflagrate engine. Uh, but I, I've played it, I used to play it back in Old Extended. If you remember the deck that Michael Jacob, he, he top forward some Grand Prix with it. It was a Golgari Life in the Loam deck that had like Bitter Blossom and yeah, I you know, yeah, yeah. mid-range creatures. I actually, uh, I top forward a PTQ with it in Las Vegas while I was uh, going to school in, in SoCal. And I had, uh, it was right after Conflux had come out and I decided to splash white because there were two white cards in Conflux that I thought were really, really good. And one of them was Knight of the Reliquary and the other one was Path to Exile. And I was, I was right on both counts. So, uh, I, I played this Abzan version of the deck that my mana base was not great. I, I've looked at the deck years later. Uh, I definitely made some mistakes in building it, but the deck was pretty cool. I, f- I ended up 5-0 in the Swiss of the 7-round PTQ in Vegas, and I lost in the top four to uh, a Tribal Zoo deck where they just had double Tribal Flames, and I stumbled once each game. And so the second Tribal Flames, you know, put it away pretty quickly. And I lost in like, you know, 15 minutes. And as it, it turned out, the person who won that PTQ was Brian Kibler, and it was when he was first coming back. And that was the PTQ that he wanted to get back on the tour. It was for Austin. He top aided Austin and, you know, the rest is history. But we would have had to have played. He was playing the same deck, though not splashing white. He was playing the, you know, straight Kogari uh, version of the archetype. So we would have had to play sort of the pseudo mirror. But he had like, he had Cabal Interrogator in his sideboard, which would have been really good. Would have been inter- interesting to play the mirror where like he had some good cards. I had the good white cards. Uh, you know, Bitter Blossom probably would have been great. I had one, um, um, Worm Harvest, that was a nice one. I I love me some Worm Harvest. I love that deck. But I love how you're, you're talking about this is one of your favorite cards of all time. This is one of my most hated cards of all time. If I wish I could have like the Sports Center, you know, graphic with all the stats on it of um, my win percentage all time versus cards cast against me. And this one would be one of the lowest. That if someone has cast Life from Alone against me, their winning percentage against me has got to be like astronomically high. Because it's almost always a lands player, and I'm just not favoring that matchup ever with any deck that I'm ever playing. So uh, it's, it's one of those cards that when people have cast Life from Alone against me, I know that, you know, I'm in for... I roll my sleeves up, if you get what I'm saying. I know that I'm in for a, a hard-fought match. Here's the thing, though, is like, I love the card Life from Alone, but I actually don't like Life from Alone decks. Yeah, I can no, no no I can I can get that. There's there's magic cards. I'm like I want to cast this magic card. I want to play with it, but I'm not a fan of like the decks. Like they just don't jive with me. Yeah. So like I remember I played for a very brief time in Legacy this Soul Tie Control deck. This is pre Deathrite Shaman, 
it was I playing, remember this deck, by yeah, the way. <laughs> it was an innocent blood deck because you had to deal with Nimble Mongoose out of Team or Delver. And, you know, played a bunch of Planeswalkers, had Liliana of the Veil, Jace. It was a really I remember slow this deck because I could never deck. fucking beat it. Yeah, it had two, <laughs> had two Life in the Loams in it. And I'm like, Life in the Loam, Liliana, I'm in for yeah. that. Yeah. That's like, the. You, that's, want, you want to do the fair Life from the Loam. Yeah, I want my Life like, from the I really want my Life from the Loam to, like, I want to pair Life from the Loam with some other way that turns the lands into cards. You know, I love Life from the Looming Back cycling cards. You want to target, like, Verdant Catacombs, Tranquil Thicket, and, like, some other random land that just yeah. taps for mana. <laughs> yeah, like, bringing back Maze of Ith Wasteland and just locking your yeah. opponent out of the game, that's no, no fun. I, no, I want I to like, just draw a million cards with it, like, and, and like, get cute. That's how I, I know the other thing I, I did back in the day, I had a homebrew deck for FNM. It was this uh, green-red Wildfire deck. It was like Wood Elves, other ramps cards, and it would Wildfire, and then next turn you just go Life in the Loam. You know, I'm going to make all my land drops. Let's go. I had like, you know, two or three Life in the Loam in my Wildfire deck. It was super fun. I also played um, Hunted Dragon. It's like three red red I six, remember six that one. flyer. I think it might have had Haste too. I don't know. Probably didn't have Haste. That would be really good. But it gave your opponent three two twos. And it, cost it did five. not have, I don't think it had Haste. Yeah, I don't think it did. But you would go, you know, on five mana, like ramp, on five mana. Hunt a dragon, untap six mana, wildfire. Next turn, life of the lone rebuild. You know, deck was cool. Speaking of cool decks, did you see the deck that won the championship qualifier in modern? Yeah, and really, like the rest of this top eight is pretty typical. And this is the one surprise. And this is goblins, a deck that we you know got a lot of hype when Snoop was first released because of the combo with Bogart Harbinger. And this deck is my brain play. did not work and function 100% correctly when he said when Snoop was released. I was like, what does Snoop Dogg <laughs> yeah. have to do with modern? I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> conspicuous Snoop. But I was just like, what it's like, literally, I was like, I know he's like apparently really good at commentary. Did he do magic commentary? Sorry, continue. <laughs> did I miss something? Did I, did, am I really if, out of the loop here? If they got Snoop Dogg to do magic commentary, if, like he secretly was a magic player for years and they just I got paid. him to do commentary. Can you imagine I, how many viewers we would have? I'd pay so much money. Yeah, like, like it would it would be so absurd. Money. Uh but the the thing that gets me is like this is a deck that got a lot of hype when it was initially a thing, did reasonably well, but kind of fell off. We haven't seen much of it maybe for a month or two. And it just shows up, takes down the biggest modern tournament of the weekend. And this was, you know, not this is a PTQ. It was 280 people. So you're talking nine rounds of Swiss, three rounds top eight. And there's nothing here that is out of the ordinary to me. There's no real innovation. They were just like, you know what? I think this deck's actually good, and maybe they're right. There is one thing I wanted to say about it. Maybe it's not like an innovation or something new or whatever, but this is actually something borrowed and something old, if you want to like go with that, old, that adage or whatever, that this is a goblin deck, all intents and purposes that you're normally seeing, but this is also harkens back to goblin decks like Onslaught era of goblin bidding. While this isn't a full-on combo version of the deck, this is a red-black version of goblins. You know, you do have, you know, black goblins in here with Bogart Herringer. You have, uh, what's the the new one? Munitions Expert. You know, some of the stuff like that. So, like, you're actually casting yeah. black spells. You and it has all the black lieutenant. lands. Yeah. But it has Agadim's Awakening as an extra, like, land spell here. And I have got to believe that there's a lot of games where they're killing you. They're they're casting their sweeper as long as not Anger of the Gods. You know, they're casting their sweeper against you or they're killing all your creatures. Or there's games where... You attack them for a bunch, and then second main, sacrifice everything, skirt Prospector, or cast Agadim's Awakening, and kill them, because you're seeing cards like Sling Gang Lieutenant in this deck, and Apostolic Mons, and stuff like that, that just gives you that extra reach of, hey, I can sacrifice all this stuff for value, make a bunch of mana, add a bunch of add a bunch of mana, 
uh, you kill know, you and, very and easily. You have, this, you have a pretty wide spread on the curve. You go, you know, one to four. I don't think there's any siege, actual siege gangs. So, you know, but one to four, like, you know, that, or what? No, you have Kiki Chiki. Yeah, because that's part of the combo. So you can go one to five, really. Uh, so you could really take advantage of Agonim's Awakening. That's a, that's a really good good find. I'm not sure if this was a popular card in uh, versions of the deck when it was first released. I will say, when you're playing three Cavern of Souls as part of like your mana base to yeah. cast black cards, it's going to be a little awkward on Agonim's Awakening. I see, you know, four, seven, nine, ten. Ten lands that aren't Agonim's Awakening that can play it. There's two Awakenings, so like the first one can help cast the second one. So definitely a tough card to cast in this deck. Uh, but when you do a really effective one, I honestly w- I wouldn't mind seeing a Graven Cairns here, a single Just Graven Cairns. Like, lands? Hmm. yeah, like you don't your yeah. your most common turn one play is Aether Vial anyway. Okay. So okay. it's it's probably not going to interrupt you that that much. Um, it, it no, would I can pro- get behind this. It would probably have to come at the expense of the ca- one of the caverns, which you probably like quite a bit with how popular the blue decks are. Yeah, but a lot the, of mana leaks in this format right now. Yeah, but if the blue decks die down a little bit, I could, I could like a Graven Cairns over a Cavern here. Mm-hmm. And I, I can see it too. I mean, the Graven Cairns helps cast Kiki Jiki yeah. on time as well. You Especially know, if like, like you know you either draw the Swamp early or you want to you know you don't want to take a bunch of damage from your Bloodstained Mire. You want to get the Swamp, or if you get Path and you don't have a Black Source yet, like I guess if you have Graven Cairns, you have a Black Source, so. Um, not a big deal in that case, but it does mitigate the, some of the damage that the Swamp can deal. That's a very tiny variable because it involves drawing both the Swamp and the Graven Cairns, but, um, you know, it, it just doesn't hurt you that much. So, uh, when, when those cards can really help you because you do have some stringent color requirements, uh, and they don't really hurt you that much, that's a rare scenario. But when it does, those filter lanes can be really powerful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, I gotta say, this deck's cool. I like it a lot. I like that it has like that, you know, backdoor combo finish possibility. It's just something that you have to respect from the deck going forward. And this is a really cool find as well. Like you said, if this wasn't a thing that was ubiquitous between all the goblin decks, this gives it that extra avenue of winning a game really long and late game where, yeah, they're gonna kill you. Cause like, here's the thing are, are the decks that have like negate and negate light cards gonna leave them in against you? No. I mean, your deck is 32 creatures. Yeah, yeah. No, nobody's leaving in Force Negation against you. Yeah, no one's leaving in Force Negation. So, like, Academy's Awakening is probably going to resolve. Especially, like, you know, later in the game when they, they finally cast their sweep. I mean, even on turn, like, six or seven, if they cast a sweeper against you, you get to untap and be like, all right, well, I'll go get three goblins out of my graveyard or four goblins out of my graveyard. That might be enough to just rebuild and kill them. This is also why I like the way this uh, list sideboard is built because it's all really high-impact or not, not all, but a lot of really high-impact non-creature cards. You know, Chalice of the Void, Blood Moon, Boil, Relic of Progenitus. Like, it's just all cards that are just like, yeah, bring out your Force Negations, let's go. I, I remember uh, years ago when I was playing Maverick and Legacy, because you were this you know fair kind of grindy deck, a lot of the Miracles decks and like slow blue decks would bo- board up Forcible against you. They're like, yeah, we have to play a long game, i got to grind. And I was like, okay, I'm going to bring in Armageddon and Elspeth and like, all these Planeswalkers. Like, yeah, bring out Forcible against me, let's go. Yeah. Cataclysm was a big one for a while to the mine of yeah. white decks. Yeah, I remember that kind of plan. Yeah. Armageddon was the was the better one for um mm-hmm. for Maverick because you know, like your mana creatures got left around, you didn't have vile yeah, to choose. Yeah. And it also if you resolved it and you had Knight of the Reliquary in play, they were dead. The game was over. D E D. Yeah. Dead. Sometimes they got a draw step and it was like, Well, I hope you go land sort supply shares, but because that's the only thing that's helping you. 
Absolutely. So I'm checking the uh, mailbag submission. We looked to have gotten no mailbag submission this week. Uh, y'all are lacking. I, I, well, I got to say, since we've introduced the overrated, underrated, the mailbag, that's yeah. when the mailbag immediately slowed down. So I think people just really want to hear us rant. Yeah, absolutely. So how about we do that for a little bit? Let's, let's get a few in. We don't have a ton of time. I think we're going to have to do an episode just on that sometime soon. But let's try to get like maybe a good solid 10 let's or 15 do, minutes. Let's, this. Do a, let's do a holiday episode where like actual Christmas day, but at like nine o'clock when we've been with our families and drinking all, sure. you know, actually I'm not going to be with my family, but uh, Same. I'm not going home. I probably won't be either, yeah. but good. So, you know, but uh, you know, I'll be like zooming with them, you know, during the morning. And, but then at night we'll be good and schnockered because it's Christmas and we'll, we'll just record an overrated underrated and then we'll release it as a, you know, boxing day present for everyone. Let's do it live. Oh, we could do a live. Fuck, fuck it. Let's do it live. <laughs> so, if, if my uh, computer is fixed by then, which I fucking hope it will be, then, uh, yeah, I'm in. All right. The first one is from Dylan the Wizard. And I'm going to kind of, it, it's it's two things, but I'm kind of going to wrap it all together. Uh, Spotify, Sirius, slash XM Radio. Um, I don't understand why these two things are together. I guess. Okay, you don't have to put them together. Like I guess streaming, technically... streaming audio. Is that kind but of But I'm idea? thinking of streaming music, yeah. But like Siri, like XM. Yeah, you're right. They're 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 different. different. All right, first one, Spotify. Spotify is probably properly rated. I would say. Um, I think think it's I think it's underrated. I mean, it's it's awesome. I love. I fucking love Spotify. Discover Weekly is one of the favorite parts of my week. It's the only way I look at new music now because I just don't have the time or the wherewithal to look into things myself. Uh, You know, so I'll listen to that Uh, often when I'm writing my article. I have my Spotify, you know, Discover Weekly on because it comes out on Mondays. That's when I write. And, you know, as I'm writing a, a song, come on, like, that's a sweet song. Add to my like songs. Let's go. Um, I love, so I fucking love Spotify. I loved Pandora in college and Spotify is just kind of an improvement on that. Um, I, do, I don't really uh, like once you have like the streaming services, I don't really understand radio. And you also have podcasts, which are just on demand radio shows mm-hmm. where you can skip the ads. Yeah, for me, I've got to say Spotify is actually underrated because of the, all the reasons you said. And then the fact that it uncluttered my life and made my life a lot easier. I don't have to buy CDs and stuff as much anymore. Yeah, or like, you know, I guess I, I think I still have like 200 gigabytes of music on an external hard drive in my closet. Um, and I haven't plugged it in in years. I'm not even like, I wouldn't be surprised if the hard drive just doesn't work. Uh, but uh, like, I don't know, just having to like have that the files on your computer the entire time is kind of annoying. Now I basically have access to, you know, terabytes and probably i don't what's above terabyte you're uh, asking the wrong person buddy i think it's, it's i think it might be pico i think it's picobyte the uh, guy like what I, I, I honestly think that the next metric prefix is pico pico uh but like you know just ridiculous amounts of data like i you have access to it without having to you know store and organize it and you, you can search through it easily spot you know, like spotify is great but i also think everybody realizes that spotify or similar services are great so I don't think it's really underrated. I think it's just properly rated as awesome. But anyway, for me, Spotify, overrated. I'm sorry, underrated. And then Sirius XM Radio, overrated. Yeah, definitely overrated. I don't even get it. Yeah. Uh, the next one from Zero Cool. Battle of Wits decks, sleeved in top loaders. And they said, yes, I've played against this in my LGS. It was ridiculous. I'm going to go with massively overrated because it's just the most ridiculous thing you can do. But I will say this. As like a one-time gag thing, like it's pretty great. And like as long as yeah. you don't have to like shuffle or anything. But... The amount of time put into this is just not the, – the squeeze is not worth the juice. Uh, yeah, at this point. The first time anyone ever did it, I think it was worth it. And now, like, we understand that it's a thing you can do, and it's no longer worth it. So 
the first time it happened, it was underrated, and it's overrated every other time since then. Perfect answer. All right. Lemon Lemon, Huntmaster of the Fells. Um, its status in Magic now is overrated because it's basically an unplayable Magic card in any format it's legal in. It, it could potentially... That would be an interesting card to have in Pioneer, to be honest. I, I agree with you. Like, it would I, match I up really well against Burn, right? I think you, I just you, agree with everything you've said so far in this. Yeah. Its historical legacy in Magic is probably a little underrated. It was really fucking good when it was in Standard. And it was, you know, a modern playable card at one point uh, in, in its life. So, you know, historically, this is the kind of card that, like, it had a good career. But right now... It's not, not doing a whole lot. So the, the game has passed right, it anyway. by. Yeah, good old Albert Pujols here. Uh, easier like this, ask Hull Breacher and or Opposition Agent in Legacy. What is Hull Breacher? Okay, Hull Breacher is the one that when they would draw a card other than their first card in their draw step, you make a treasure token instead, and it's like a 3-2 flash creature for three, if I remember right. Let me make sure I get the stats so the, exactly. So they right. don't get to draw cards? cards. Huh? They don't get to draw extra cards now? Right. Is this another one of let those me, let me read. Let me read this exactly just to make sure I get it 100% because this is a Commander's Legends card. All right. If an opponent would draw a card except the first one they draw in each of their draw steps, instead, meaning they don't draw, you create a treasure token. It is a 3-2 flash for two and a blue. Fuck this card. Exactly. Follow-up question, though. What is Opposition Agent? Uh, It's a 3-2 flash for... It's, a, it's the same card in black, right? It's a 3-2 flash for two and a black. You're, uh, you control your opponents while they're searching their libraries. I was wrong. This is not the one I thought it was. And it says, while an opponent is searching their library, they exile each card they find. You may play those cards for as long as they remain exiled, and you may spin manas over man of any color to cast them. Okay. I am going to issue a sweeping declaration. And that is that if a magic card has only ever been printed in a supplemental product, Commander, uh, um, uh, conspiracy, but any of this secret, nonsense, secret layer. Yeah, yeah, if it has only ever been printed in a supplemental product like this, I fucking hate it, and it should be buried in the deserts of Las Vegas with those ET games. <laughs> I actually like that you made that reference. That is a thing. Um, I'm gonna go with underrated i'm going to actually answer try to answer the question underrated and hold breacher are a little overrated and opposition agent in the fact that i think hold breacher is just a good card in general and can be very good the fact that it's blue helps it out a lot but i think we're going to um i think i'm going to change my thing on it in the in the, in the future where i don't think it's going to be super impactful in the future because of the fact that i don't know like even Legacy, your opponent casts Brainstorm and you do this in response. Yeah, but like once people realize that it's a thing in your deck, they're going to play around a lot. So like at that point, I think one copy is like probably the right amount for you because you don't want to draw them in multiples. And like if your opponent's going to play around it anyway, it's better to have less copies of the card. I don't know, man. I, I really don't know. I have to play with them. Uh, the Opposition Agent does not seem as big a deal to me as Hole Breacher. And I'm kind of with you. I really wish these cards weren't necessarily legal. And legacy, but it's like kind of like whatever. Just Most fire time. them into the fucking sun. It's fucking <laughs> All right. nonsense. Next one. Zeth 4. Hamilton. Overrated by a wide margin. Overrated by some margin less than wide, but just still a ridiculous overrated. margin. What I, this stupid nonsense fucking show just whitewashing a bunch of slave owners. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> fuck Hamilton right. and especially fuck Lin-Manuel Miranda. He's a piece of shit. 
All right. Uh, KFET says, Ken Jennings. And like, I, I think he might have asked this before we found out that Ken Jennings was going to be the, the new special host for a while. Well, th- there there's there's going to be the, like a cycling of guest hosts. And to me, that like, Essentially, I'm I'm guessing that like this is just part of the interview processes. Like they're just letting the people that they like have a shot at guest hosting, and they're going to use that to decide who's going to be the permanent next host. Um, is my idea, and Ken is kind of the first one. Honestly, like the idea that Ken is going to be the next host of Jeopardy has been around since shortly after his end, his run ended back in 2005. So like th- this has been something that's been floated around forever. He was actually being like groomed as a pitchman for a little while. There was a, a they made a, a trivia game that was about him, uh, you know. And he's done some more media stuff since then. He's been on other game shows. Like there's a there's a game show network show called Masterminds where you sort of like compete. There there's three contestants, but there's three masterminds on the other side. And in the initial portion of the show, the masterminds compete against each other, and the contestants compete against each other with the same set of questions. And then the the winning mastermind goes head to head with the winning contestant at the end for you know the, the in the bonus game for ten thousand dollars. But uh, it's a cool show, and Ken is often one of the masterminds there. Um, so like he 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 has the chops to do it. Uh, you know, no Jeopardy fan would be upset if Ken becomes the next host. Obviously, you know, Jeopardy means a lot to him and has been the defining feature of his life. As far as Ken as a as a Jeopardy contestant, for years, I think this would have been a snap underrated for me uh, because it was clear that he just lost in every major tournament to Brad Rutter. Up until this last one where it was Brad and um, and Ken and and James, the, the the you know, the, the greatest of all time tournament that they did. And I, ex- I actually thought James was going to win. Um, and I'm pretty sure Ken like really wanted to win. And I bet he put in a lot of prep work. That's what, that's my guess as to how, what happened. I know Brad is sort of famous for not doing a lot of prep work. He just kind of shows up and is really fucking good. Um, and there, uh, but you know, it's hard to be, to not be underrated when you go on such a run that Ken went on because it like nobody goes on a run like that without getting incredibly lucky. And he actually like came pretty close to losing like his fourth show. I get I, like he was losing going into Final Jeopardy, and it, the person missed it. And I don't think it was like that hard of a question. So like he could have just easily lost like his fourth show. And if he had done that, he would have just spent the rest of his life as a computer programmer in fucking Salt Lake City, Utah, or wherever he was from somewhere in Utah, uh, and like never you know just you know lived his regular life instead of becoming what he is, which is you know a multimillionaire doing whatever the hell he wants. So, uh, I would say as a trivia, you know, person, as a, like a actual, like, uh, I, and which is the only way I really want to evaluate him. He's, he's certainly has to be overrated. Uh, and that's especially true because Jeopardy, it doesn't just select for your trivia acumen. It also has to select for your ability to be a contestant and be entertaining. You know, the, I, I do learned league, you know, this online trivia league, and the, there are people in this league, which is, you know, questions much harder than Jeopardy that are getting 90% of them right. And it's absurd. And Ken is actually was in the league until a couple like a year or two ago. He's like 81% for his career. And there's plenty of people in the league that are better than that. So if you're just going on like raw stats, you know, there, there's probably thousands of people in the world that are better than Ken Jennings at trivia. But Ken is a very affable person that plays really well on TV, uh, which is, you know, that's a skill and that or, or an ability that he has. And he's also, you know, incredible at trivia. But, um, you know, you got to give him credit for, you know, running with it. I think he's the only person to really t- 
turn a you know Jeopardy appearance, and granted it was you know an incredibly outlier Jeopardy appearance into a, a media career. I think I think Brad Rutter does acting, you know, and, and I'm sure his Jeopardy appearances have helped that. James uh, is probably just back doing more sports betting or whatever the hell he does, you know. Um, but you know, he really just completely reshaped his life based on the results of his run on Jeopardy. And that definitely takes, you know, some effort and ability on his part. So give him credit there. But just as a trivia person, I got to say overrated. I'm going to say underrated, uh, mostly for the fact that from my perspective, I think he'd be a great host. Uh, Oh, yeah. I'm actively hoping that he will be the next host. Yeah, I love his demeanor and the like the way his presence on on camera. Plus, I love his attitude. Like he has like. I think the perfect attitude for doing a trivia show with these people who like, because most of the people who get on Jeopardy, they have that, you know, I'm really fucking smart type thing. You know, I'm real good at this kind of thing. They have that like that. Um, what's the word I'm looking for here? That kind of uh, self-aggrandizing. There's an, there's an ego. Like, yeah, they have a really big and, ego. And, and he has a good way of putting people where they, where yeah, they need to be. So Trebek had a very uh, sort of passive aggressive way of doing it. Yes. And because he has that kind of, uh, academic accent and and he his French is really good because he's Canadian and so anytime like they wouldn't know something that he knew and he's also you know just a well-read you know intelligent human being he he would always be really passive aggressive about you know letting them know, like ah yeah the answer was this or whatever or he would he would correct their pronunciation of something you know he would do like little things I think Ken would be a little bit more overt with needling people uh, because you know he wouldn't just try to toast the same way Trebek hosted uh, no one should ever do that. But I think he'd be a little bit, um, you know, a little bit less passive in his putting people in their place. And I think that would be kind of funny. And, and I would like to see that. I, I hope that's how he would do it. That's kind of how I, I envision. But you never really know. Um, I, I mainly just I'm just really hoping that this isn't another Bob Barker situation. So when uh, I was a huge Price is Right watcher as a kid uh, and when Bob Barker retired, uh, you know, Drew Carey took over and it, and the show has never been the same to me. It's, it's actively hard to watch. And I don't know if like Drew Carey is not necessarily bad, but every time I watch with him hosting, I get the feeling that he just doesn't want to be there. Like he's literally just cashing a check. Yeah. He's uh, phoning it in. Yeah. yeah like he, he's just, he's just phoning it in and he's been doing it, phoning it in for 15 years. So I just don't like Drew Carey hosting it. Whoever gets the next job hosting Jeopardy, as long as they don't phone it in and I can continue watching. Though I, I actually don't watch much Jeopardy these days because I don't like it's just hard to watch without TV. Um, but uh, I would still like to watch on occasion. So as long as like the person isn't just phoning it in for a fucking check. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Uh, the next one is from Massimo. Burn in Legacy. Overrated. It's like not even playable, but some yeah, people still play it. I think it's massively overrated. I, again, I, I'm in the firm belief. I think it's unplayable. All right. From uh, Luna Culture, uh, Luna Cultus, is that what it says? I can't. Luna, Lunar Cultus. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I have it really small on my screen. So when there's a lot of. All right. Uh, Studio Ghibli. What? Do you not know what this is? No. Those were. Okay. Ghibli? I. I. I I'm not sure to pronounce it. There's like different different pronunciations. The only reason I know what this is is um, a lot of my friends are really into it, and I had to like look it up to make sure it's exactly what I did. They did uh, Howl's Moving Castle, Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away, uh, a bunch of other animated films like that. And this is the only interaction I have with them, which is 
practically zero because I've never seen the films, but I'm going to go with underrated because uh, the amount of passion behind the people that love these things, uh, these seem to be like life-altering movies and, and stuff for these people, so I'm going to go with uh, underrated. You can you can say that you don't know what this is and you don't have an answer. I thought this was... Uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the, the director. Yeah, Miyazaki. So, what, like, what do you... Oh, th- that's the studio. Yeah, it's the studio. They do that did them. Okay, it's the animation studio. So they're like the a Japanese equivalent of Pixar or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I, I, uh, I've never seen any of these movies, so I just can't rate them. But I know they're very highly rated, and uh, they're also like highly like they're critically acclaimed. So for whatever that means, but like I just have no sense of, of what to say. Yeah. Also from SMO again, Insomnia. Mm. insomnia fucking sucks but everybody knows yeah. it sucks properly rated properly rated Dude, i've had a couple Vindi- of rough nights this week and uh this, this morning actually it caught up with me like i i got to sleep a little earlier than normal and i woke up about 10 and uh i was like oh, i've got a little bit of time i can snooze even more just to really like you know get a little bit more sleep because the last the previous two nights have been had been rough and i must have hit turn the alarm off instead of snooze and then I woke up again at eleven forty-five, and you know I've I've got to be you know in the in the studio like twelve fifteen twelve thirty usually for the one o'clock fire t- for versus live. So waking up at eleven forty-five is you know cutting it pretty close, but we were fine. Yeah, I must say uh, I've been having some problems with it myself lately as well. JCJS Vintage Cube, I believe we've touched on this before. The guy said that it's, I think it's overrated. Yeah, overrated. But we both love Cube. We just think Vintage yeah. Cube is like you know not the best Cube. Uh, Lemon, Lemon again. Ask Red Mana. I'm gonna go with underrated. Yeah, un- um, though, yeah, it's fine. I think it's really done a good job of redefining itself over the last few years of not just being an all-in aggro deck in a lot of formats and it being an actual all-star in a lot of spots. So yeah, uh, it's Lim- done that on occasion, but not a ton to the point where like uh, to me, it's not really that redefined. We still see like most often the red decks are just red aggro decks, and we don't we don't see a lot of um. I don't see a lot of base red decks that have, you know, second colors or if, like, I guess we've seen Gruel Adventures recently, but even that deck is like really heavily green. It's really just red for Bonecrusher Giant and Embercleave. Um, so to me, it, it still hasn't done enough to get out of that stigma. Uh, Lee McLeod asked player skill. Well, it, it's what's overrated is our narrow conception of player skill where we only talk about essentially tactics and in, in-game tactics, like the skills, the other skills that go along with magic, which I think one is having an in-depth strategic understanding of the game. The Like understanding the big picture is even more important for in-game stuff because it like you can be really good at analyzing, um, you know, the uh, board states and coming to the, to the right conclusions, but you also have to be asking the right questions. If you ask the wrong question, even if your analysis is correct, you're going to end in the in the wrong place. And so, ha- having the big picture is, be, is knowing what the requ- the right questions are to ask. The tactical stuff is knowing how to answer the questions. Uh, and then uh, there's the whole outside of the game stuff. The you know deck choice, deck tuning, sideboarding, all of that stuff is so important. And all of that stuff happens you know b- before the tournament even starts. And these are all separate elements of of you know player skill. And they, they almost all of them get dwarfed by our discussion of just tactical play. 
honestly, e- even with the pr- all the praise that Autumn got this past weekend, it was all about, you know, their sequencing and the early turns of all these games, which was really impressive, you know, no doubt. But look at the decks that they brought, the innovations that they, they've brought, the sideboard plans, all of that was on point two. And it was, you know, the totality of that that was really impressive, not just one or the other. I'm going to go with underrated. I'm going to keep giving really small answers because you keep going for so long. So. Well, I have opinions, Tannen. I can't no, help no, myself. Just, I have some too, but you don't usually, when you, when you go this long, I can't have one. All right. Next one, Leo the the Modern. Uh, morning morning tea. Uh, I think this is massively overrated. I don't like tea. Neither do I. Yeah, super easy. Dylan the Wizard. I was just going to say tea, but they said specifically green tea. I'm going to say underrated because I do like green tea. I, it's the only form of tea I like. I don't like green tea. No, no lemon though. Just, just put a little bit of honey in it and make it hot, hot green tea. So all, all tea uh, pass. Uh, Joe uh, says memorizing things. I'm gonna go with massively overrated, but that's mostly because of my hatred of the fact that that's how most schooling is graded, and I think it's we're mostly graded on memorizing stuff instead of like actually learning it and being able to utilize it. So it's very annoying to me. Yeah. Well, so that's been true for many decades, but I think we're sort of turning back around. And we're getting to the point where, you know, everybody understands that, that, and uh, you know, understanding concepts is really important and that's how it should happen. But there's a certain base level of sort of, of just rote knowledge that everybody needs. Otherwise, like doing the practice to learn the concepts becomes too difficult. Like, can you imagine trying to learn algebra when you have problems with, you know, basic multiplication tables? Well, yeah, right? of course, yeah. It, it just becomes horrendous. really difficult. You're spending so much time doing the the basic things that uh, and so much you know mental energy and, and that you you're just going to struggle moving forward. So th- there's a lot of baseline stuff that people need memories. I'm I'm talking like just really basic stuff, and we should work harder early on to make sure everybody has that that small baseline. I think our education system you know pushes people through in elementary schools and stuff, and that's how you end up with kids that are graduating high school that are functionally illiterate or, you know, can barely multiply two numbers in their head. So we need to do a better job of making sure the really basic knowledge that you really need and use as building blocks to learn the the concepts that you need to be a really functioning adult in society are there. But once you get that baseline, like, yeah, nobody needs to really memorize, you know, uh, you know, all the dates and things and, you know, memorizing different formulas this started, I think, even when I was in high school, like, you know, you know, my math teachers would often say, like, yeah, you can bring a, you know, an index card front and back and write whatever you want on it and that you yeah, could have that for tests. So all the formulas and stuff, like, you didn't have to memorize all of those because that's I just nonsense. Use like, yeah. why, like I, I do remember we had to memorize the quadratic formula in eighth grade. And I think that was bullshit. And like there's just no point in having that memorized, um, mm. you know. No, 100% agree with you. You know, yeah. so stuff like that. Yeah, yeah I agree. But. Uh, you know, you should have it. The, the, there's a there's a small factor that memorization plays at the very beginning of your education that is really important, and we don't do a good job a good enough job of making sure every kid has that down. And once you start falling behind, it, it's just it keeps perpetuating, and you you can't really catch up. Absolutely. Uh, b- before we started getting into the uh, the closing of the show, there's one more thing I wanted to mention. Make sure that you do check out our sponsor right now, Barrister and Man. Um, I was say I actually went and grabbed some stuff because I I've, was talking about it earlier today. It's on the side of my room. It's weird because Super they're in New York to... and you're in Louisiana. You you went you went all the way from Louisiana to New York and grabbed some stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Just ran up there real quick. You know, um, <laughs> Forrest Gump style. Was Jackson Brown playing in the background? Yeah, something like that. You know, just a lot of energy drinks. You know, did it all in just one go. Like no stops. <laughs> 
Yeah, r- running is easy. You just step one, you know start running. Step two. You know what- there is no step two. Yeah, hold on. Let me. I, I'm gonna quick. I'm gonna quick map quest this real quick. I'm very interested to see how many miles from New York. I'm gonna from guess New York, New York. Uh, like eleven hundred. All right, New York, New York. You think eleven hundred? 1,189 miles. Nice. And if I were to drive there right now, hold on, it's still taking a minute, 20 hours and 13 minutes. It's actually less than if I drove to Vegas from here, which is funny. I was off by like 8% or so I was off by. Yeah. That's pretty good. Very good job. Uh, But no, uh, make sure to check out our our sponsor, Barrister and Man, for all of your soap, soap soap-related, anything like that kind of products. There's all kinds of beard oils. Aftershaves, cologne. They got a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. All kinds of stuff. Um, uh, I was going to say, I'm, I'm really excited. I've got three new soaps in front of me that I'm going to be trying uh, sometime soon. The two that I'm super excited about are I've got Bay Rum and Seville. I know you were trying out some of the Seville stuff yourself, weren't you? I, I, Seville is still, to this day, my favorite scent. The Bay Rum is one that grew on me. I had one, uh, I think, a while ago, several months ago. And uh, that, that's a nice one. And uh, I know we had been talking about this lately, and I did try it because, you know, we've been talking about, you know, aftershaves. It made me think about it. Um, I actually clean shaved the other day for the first time in... I want to say it's got to be a decade or close to a decade. I cannot remember the. Did you take pictures? No, I didn't take any oh. pictures. But uh, I did walk out and like look at my wife, and she did a double take. <laughs> I, had, I had no, I had no hair on my face whatsoever, and um, I got to say this. My my skin was not happy about it, you know, because like I haven't put a razor across my face in God knows how long, but. It was made easier by some of the products that I have from Barrister Man. I, that aftershave balm they have. I know you said you, you finally got to try it the other day. I am. I, I think it might be the only one I use for the rest of my life. Like, there's almost none of the the uh, that after sting. There was a little tiny bit, but you know that's to be expected when you've like ripped open your pores for the first time yeah. in forever. Um, there's a little bit, but my face just felt much better afterwards. Like it cooled down way way quicker. I didn't have any of that like aftershave uh, after shaving burn. Yeah, uh, to it irritation. it felt way more smooth after it like she kept rubbing up against it my dog actually kept rubbing up against it my, i think my dog's thinking about like where where's your fur like where, where did it go <laughs> you know because like usually you know i've got it's gonna, like it's you gonna know, cold out you should be growing more of it <laughs> yeah i know right it's cold outside but i don't know i just got like a wild hair up my ass or whatever it's you know whatever the saying is and uh just like i don't think the saying is that yeah whatever i think a that's wi- exactly what? what it is Whatever, Ross. I'm anyway, pretty good like, with old-timey sayings, and I have never heard that in my I've life. I've heard it a bunch here, but anyway. Got a um, wild hair up my ass. <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's not, the that's phrase? Not, that's not, hey, let's not go too far into it, all right? Um, I may have had a couple I'm, drinks. I, <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't want to hear it from you. Um, but yeah, so make sure you check out Barrister Man. Uh, great holiday gifts uh, for most people. I think I'm going to get my brother a few things. I keep saying that. I keep not doing it. I need to You're, you're running out of time, Tannen. I'm 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 gonna have to message the the owner because because we got connections like that. Yeah, can you make sure? <laughs> can you, uh, can you make push sure mine through to, a little bit? <laughs> yeah, like I'll pay extra. Just make sure it actually gets here on time. Yeah, grease the wheels. Um, yeah, just make sure that you check out their 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 whole catalog online. Lots of really cool stuff on there. We don't do enough justice to how big their selection actually is. They have a ton of good scents. Um, and they're you know, always adding more. Smells. Yeah, they're always adding more. They have seasonal ones too, which is really cool. Like I'm really looking forward to when it starts to become spring again. We can get the baseball scent. They have like an actual baseball scent that I'm a big fan of, and I'm gonna get something else new in that. Like I've been rationing that one out as much as possible to like <laughs> not you know use it all up. Also, it, it I, I never really got into that kind of stuff, but it kind of makes sense not to have it like in the dead of winter to smell like a baseball field. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like doesn't make sense, right? You want to smell like a burnt log after a fire. Yeah, it's like wearing white after Labor Day or something. You know, it doesn't make sense. But, um, sorry. <laughs> but 
Uh, make sure you check it out. Uh, our code on there is now MTG Rants to kind of go with the uh, the new name change of the show as well. So we can use that on there to get a little kickback. It also lets them know that, you know, we're, we're doing our part. You know, it helps support the show when you do that because they support us and we're a big fan of their product. So make sure you check them out. Uh, it's, it, I don't know if I've ever stressed this enough. It's also made by hand by a fellow Magic player. So you know that it's quality stuff. I guess. Look, all I'm saying is, like, like if I were to go buy pottery right now, I know who I'd buy pottery from. Sure. But I, like, the idea that because they're a Magic player, you know, they're going to be, like, are most Magic players, you know, very diligent and disciplined in their work? Yes. That's not the answer I was expecting. I only know the competitive ones. So. Sure, sure. I, I guess. Um, You're ruining my analogy or my thing here, Ross. I'm, I'm, Shut up. The thing is, I'm not do, like, you know, yeah, I, know. The, I, get, I get what you're saying. Yeah, the owner is great and he knows his shit. So, you know, regardless of whether he's a magic player or not, it's cool that he is. Uh, you know, they make a very good product. And OK, well, he's if I remember right, he's also a lawyer and they're very meticulous with that kind of stuff. That is true. So there you go. How about that? You got In your face. There. In my In face. Your face. With a wild hair. And anyway, <laughs> that, apparently that one's not going in the face. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Well, you don't want it to go in your face after it's been where it's been. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you keep you keep your wild hairs to yourself. Yeah, that is Bearskin Man Two Ends. Uh, check out their website. Lots of cool stuff there. I'm I can't guarantee it, but if you start ordering stuff now, you might get it by Christmas. I don't I don't know what their shipping's going to look like for Christmas. I know I, they said they've been really busy. We can guarantee that you'll get it. I'll guarantee that you get it. Yeah, for sure. But uh, like Ross said, lots of cool stuff for not just men, uh, a lot of a lot of cool stuff for women and stuff in there. I mean, hand and body soap is pretty ubiquitous, but, you know, some face shaving stuff might not be for, for everyone. Who knows? You know, kind of stuff. But lots of really cool gift ideas on there for holidays and or birthdays and stuff. So make sure you check it on there. I am awesome. I am like very pleasantly surprised by everything I try with them, but I'm, I'm also excited to try out new stuff with them and like. Which is weird, a guy my age. I'm kind of like set in my ways with my things. So yeah, but also we're, we're at the age where like mundane things excite us. You know. Yeah. When you get a like a you know a, a vacuum cleaner, you know, oh, you're yeah, excited sucks. to use it. You're like, man, that suction is really nice. And you get some nice soap. You're like, ooh, that smells good. Yeah, <laughs> like it's a little things too. Oh, like, those socks you know, are fuzzy um, and warm. That's great. I love having warm feet. <laughs> Yeah, like you've heard me harp on the uh, the shaving brush, right? And, oh, and, the, yeah. and the shaving in the and it's I no longer have shaving cream, right? I have like the shaving butter or whatever you know it is that you you know you lather it up, you put it across your entire face. And I'll say this: it, it made the like I've said it it made the razor go across a lot easier. It's a smooth, easy shave. And then like I just notice that my skin is healthier when I'm using it. You know, it helps you like exfoliate. You know, it helps you moisturize all that kind of stuff. Which I've got to do a better job of doing that anyway. Especially like I'm just noticing that I, you know, Kenny, you look like age, you're 12. I, guess, I think you're doing fine. Shut up. But I mean, uh, my my skin is drying out more, is what I'm saying in the future. So like anything that makes it easier on me, because like the last thing I do look, when I go to bed, I just want to like go face plant into my bed. I have to make myself go brush my teeth and stuff, and I don't want to sit there and get out like some kind of cream and you know moisturize my face and stuff. But if this is something that just makes it easier for me, you know, something I can just do that I'm going to be doing anyway. Yeah. You know, I'm going to be like shaving and keeping myself. Yeah, it just kind of does it on its own. And and Ross likes to play around with a little brush, too. He uses it as, like, a, a, a fiddling tool. So, yeah. again, make sure you check him out. It's Bear Stern Man, Man with Two Ends. Uh, you know, MTG Rants. Real real easy. Good code on there. I think it's, like, 15% off any of your orders. It'll, at the least, cover the shipping. So uh, make sure you check him out. 
Um, other than that, Ross, if people wanted to hear more of your rants, where would they go? Best place is my Twitter account. I am at Ross Hunneds. That's H-U-N-N-E-D-S. Good place to get updates on my content and, um, you know, ask me questions. I try to get back to people as much as possible. Then there's my written content on Star City Games. It uh, generally goes up at 11 a.m. Eastern on Tuesdays. This week's article is all about ad nauseum and modern. A deck I think is being criminally underrated. Did reasonably well, didn't top eight this weekend, but if you look in that top 32 of those tournaments, you'll see some ad nauseum decks. I think the deck is quite good. You can see my reasons why um, and the list I advocate for in that article. Then there is Versus Live, the show I co-host twice a week with Corey Baumeister. That's 1 to 4 p.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Star City Games Twitch channel. We do questions live from the audience. We have a good time playing whatever formats are relevant for competitive magic. If you can't catch us live, you can watch us on YouTube. The VODs go up the next day at 5 p.m. And then finally, there is my stream. My desktop is currently out of commission, so there will be no streaming until that gets fixed. But I am in the works of having that happen, so it shouldn't be too long unless something horrible has happened. And I really hope that's not the case. Tannen, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at the Tannen Grace. You can find me on Twitch under just Tannen Grace. Um, I do stream every now and then, um, not as much as I'd like to, but again, it's it's hard to find the time and the motivation. With that, I've got a lot going on right now, especially with the holidays. So maybe we can ramp that back up when everything slows down a little bit. But I've got some stuff in works for the future. That eh, you know, we might see some more of that stuff. But for me, it's mostly limited lately. But if I play some standard, I'll definitely be doing that because there's a few decks I want to try out. So. We'll be looking into that sometime soon. Um, as for the show, uh, you can follow it on Twitter at, at MTG Rants. Um, we have a Discord. There's a link on the Twitter very easily, or you can ask one of us or the editor, Brent, our lovely editor, as well, to find uh, the link to the Discord. Our Discord is very, very um, active, I think is the right word for it. Lots of really cool things going on there. There's tons of magic talk, but there's tons of non-magic talk in there, too, because, you know, what would our what would our Discord be like if there weren't other tangents and rants going on in there? So make sure you check out that stuff. And for everyone that's a member of our Patreon, all of our patrons at home, thank you very much for the support. Y'all have been great. I know we've been promising y'all some stuff, but I actually saw a preview of something that we're working on for y'all. And I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. This is just a tease, but I have a preview of something, especially for the people that have been with us for uh, a good bit of time. You're going to get the first uh, shipment of these. And uh, if we pull this off, this is looking really, really cool. And I'm really looking forward to it. I think you're going to like it. So keep your eye out. Keep your eye eye. Keep your eyes out for that sometime soon. We'll have an announcement of that as soon as possible. We're working on a few other things with it. But anyway, we'll see y'all next week. Fucker, you just ran headfirst into fucking stupid-ass gather cards. I can't believe it. What a piece of shit with this pile of crap deck playing one-mana-one-ones. I fucking hate this game.